just going to jump right in and talk Jalen Hurts' contract extension. Now, with Jaylen, Jordan Lailata restructuring, do you think Buda Baker's a real possibility? <laughs> Buda Baker's on the table. Buda Baker is on the table. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, what do you think of tracking shots? Just by the way, you're not appearing on the Pink Smoke podcast. You're appearing on Birdman, our Inuritu and Philadelphia Eagles podcast. That's what you're going oh, on here. Just let that camera roll. I, I mean, know, if you can't I... get it all in one shot, just digitally stitch them together. What's the issue? I thought that we agreed the title was going to be Birds and Birdman. <laughs> it's called Birdman or the <laughs> incredible problems of having frequently injured quarterbacks. What's the stupid fucking subtitle of that movie? Oh, uh, the knows? incredible. No, what, what? I'm just thinking of that <laughs> Nick Cage movie, the incredible way to massive talent. It's something like that, but yeah. Like the, the extraordinary the, the virtue of pretentiousness of... or something like that. <laughs> something like that. I forget what it is now. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in, talking okay, a little a little Jalen Hurts. I mean, imagine going from being benched in the national championship game, getting shown up by Tua Tagovailoa, getting taken in the second round. Carson Wentz is back up, almost getting cut, subject of Russell Ruman, Russell Wilson trade rumors, and then I mean, the, the largest contract quarterback of all time in in Damn. NFL history. Um, how are you doing, Martin? Good. Um... I mean, some donkey out there is missing his brains because he lent up to me, but that, <laughs> everything's fine. I just think it's weird that you're pretending now like both the chimpanzee and the pig are yours and that you like them both, that they're both your pets. At the end of all of this, at the end of our complicated tale, it's weird that you're holding them both and pretending like you love them both, even though you were threatening to kill the chimp, which is mine. It's fucked up, Martin. It's just gags. It's all gags. It's fine. <laughs> uh i never should have made a bet on the life of that chimp i don't know what i was doing martin john cribs you want to introduce this you want to get this in order this is six minutes of pure stupidity so far i thought that was the intro right there okay that is the intro all that's going in the dumb eagles thing all of it it's (laughs) no all the checking the levels and stuff no It was unfortunate that Doc Savage had never heard of John Sunlight. Doc Savage's life work was dedicated to attending to such men as John Sunlight, preferably before they managed to get too near their goal. But Doc Savage did not hear of John Sunlight in time. It was also too bad that John Sunlight was destined to be the man who found the strange blue dome. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast, and this is an episode that I have been very excited to do for a long time. Chris, I've wanted to do one on like a pop cultural icon that was huge in its time, but has not endured, you know, those kind of interesting early 20th century relics. I wanted to read uh, a Conan or a Tarzan or the shadow, but even more obscure, I think is doc Savage. So my idea was we would do a Pulp Fiction episode. God damn it. Quentin Tarantino really has stolen that phrase. hasn't he? <laughs> it's he's ruined a very good phrase. How about we use a pulp pulp novel or (laughs) (laughs) pulp magazines? Really, pulp magazine. Yeah, it was published in magazines. I guess they were. I'm fine with saying uh, pulp fiction over and over. I mean, you know very well. I published a series, or not? I published a series. I programmed a series when I was in the movie theater of adaptations of pulp novels called Pulp Fictions, and they put fucking Mister Lou over (laughs) the preview. Yes, that was infuriating. But I included no Tarantino films. And that just to be just to be pointed, there was a young man who was very upset 
in the in the staff that I had not included Jackie Brown. And he asked why I didn't include it. I was like, because it sucks. And he did not <laughs> like that answer. He was not happy with that answer to that well, question. I'm 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 infuriated that I can't use the word pulp fiction whenever I want. And I can't talk about reservoir dogs anytime I want. I know. Or or if Lois Fonts has been ruined for you. <laughs> totally ruined that movie that I love so much. Uh, but Doc Savage, Doc <laughs> Savage, for those who don't know, uh, was published in a magazine, Doc Savage magazine from 1933 to 1949 and was incredibly popular at the time and kind of then had a lull where, you know, comic books took over, superheroes took over. And even though Doc Savage was integral to these, you know, development of these characters, he wasn't uh, didn't really come into the pop cultural range again until the 60s when they started releasing these books. Uh, with the James Bandma covers, right? They started reprinting all the old adventures and then he kind of got famous again. But even now, I feel like your average Joe won't recognize the name Doc Savage. Do you, Martin Kessel, what do you, what are you, what's your experience with Doc Savage and uh, these pulp heroes? I was familiar with the name, but not much else. I kind of have that vague image of like, ah, some guy with this shirt ripped with muscles. <laughs> even when we were talking about doing this episode, like when we first started talking about doing something pulpy, I was suggesting uh, a princess of Mars or something like that, which I'd never read. And you said Doc Savage, and I was like, "Oh, all right." Yeah. Right. <laughs> but... Has has the book in any way deepened or challenged your image of Doc Savage as some guy in a ripped shirt with muscles? After reading two of the books, are you able to describe him any better than that? I'm not sure I am. <laughs> marginally better than that i think now there's a couple things i learned about doc savage um although i think for me he the character wasn't necessarily the highlight of his own novels <laughs> well he has the he has the superman problem of being overpowered and not being interesting at all and especially like the golden age superman who is like a sort of guy who he's like main character as deus ex machina who just shows up to like clean up the problems more than you're watching him do stuff you know the secondary yeah. characters the jimmy olsen lois lane you know types tend to take center stage as much as him himself or the villains if you're talking about batman or something yeah but i think you have a really good villain in uh, both of these stories it's a reoccurring character which i only just found out apparently is not typically a thing for doc savage usually the villains are wrapped up by the end of the story and don't return this is sort of an exception to that although i think like for me the it's not delved into too much in either book but i could imagine it being something interesting to delve into is that whole idea of like doc savage kind of missing out on a normal life normal childhood like he's basically Arnold Schwarzenegger in Twins, where he's like raised by scientists <laughs> to be this like per uh, perfect. Damn it, that's my apparatif. Twins is my apparatif. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when I picture the character at first, I thought he was going to be like, I mean, you hear the name Doc Savage, and it's like, oh, it's going to be like Tarzan in a white lab coat. You know, he's going to like be super smart, but he's going to go wild and, and like he doesn't really go wild. He's always very level headed and he's very. Uh, like in control of his own emotions and stoic and always knows the right thing to do. And I think some of the best moments are when the villain one-ups him, when the villain makes a wax 
duplicate of himself that has a bomb <laughs> attached to it. <laughs> you know, things like this are are really kind of fun because it feels like, oh, like somebody got a one-up on him. But um That's one of the weirdest yeah. aspects of Doc Savage is how his his self-control comes out as a uh, trill an exotic trilling sound like a jungle I, I wish there was well it's first like described that, but... as the to that trilling sound when you try and picture it as being like the um the throat singing like the tibetan it's described as like something that they're able to do in the far east and you're like so when he's nervous he does the like oh like what the fuck are you talking about book at any rate, let's before we dig too in deeply, let's talk about the two books we're talking about, what we're doing, do our aperitif pairings and and get into it. Because, you know, like you guys, I had never I had heard the name Doc Savage. I didn't know a thing about him. He was sort of conflated in my mind with like Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos era Nick Fury. Just I pictured like a dude just in a brawl, you know, probably doing something in wartime. I really had no fucking clue what he was like. Me neither. I, I'm an incredible Hulk fan. So like I heard the name and I, I assume it's Doc Samson, who's a character from Hulk. Uh, but yeah, the the two Doc Savage uh, stories that we decided to pick and just because they came in the, the same book that I happened to have, but I think that they were, we probably picked some good ones are uh, the Fort- Fortress of Solitude and The Devil Genghis, which were both published in 1938. They were issues 68 and 70 of Doc Savage magazine. Doc Savage character, you know, comes from off the success of The Shadow. It was developed by the same guys who, I think, created The Shadow, uh, the Street and Smith publications. And the guy who wrote these two stories is one uh, Mr. Dent. Writing under Lester the name, Dent, yeah. Lester Dent, writing under the house pseudonym of Kenneth Robeson. And he ended up writing a bulk of the series, something like... a. Uh, Hundred out of 181 of the original novels, or something like that. So he's he's the main Doc Savage guy. And so, when I heard the reason why they use the the house name is partly like if he was coming up late on a deadline, you would just pull in another author to like finish up his work. Or if you wanted to go boating, you would just have somebody ghost write a chunk of it. So like it, it almost, I I'm sure there are Doc Savage experts who could tell you where some of these come from but apparently they're a little bit like piecemeal uh even though lester Dent did the bulk of the writing yeah a lot of this is you know based on the idea that these things were transient right they weren't going to actually become like things that people would read a hundred years later uh, i think that you know they just thought they were just throwing them out there and they were never going to be read again after they were initially bought off you know for 10 cents or whatever off of the newsstand and that's also the reason why you see so many specific things being utilized by uh, comic book writers in the development of their superheroes. Why we're reading a story called the fortress of solitude, which is no coincidence. They just ripped off Mort Weisinger, the uh, Superman editor just stole that from his, from reading doc Savage just said, Superman's going to have his own fortress of solitude up in the Arctic. And um, Bill Finger, when he see he was creating Batman uh, said that he should be a combination of Douglas Fairbanks, Sherlock Holmes, the shadow and doc Savage. So these guys are just like taking these things that they'd read and applying it to characters that would just endure longer, just had like a longer lifespan for whatever reason. So it's always interesting to kind of see those parallels and see like, oh, I recognize this from, you know, The Flash or this from uh, Spider-Man even. Stan Lee was a big fan of these books. So again, a really weird kind of now obscure character that's endured in a different kind of way where he's like his DNA is kind of all over these other things that people know much, much better. Chris, do you want to start us off with your aperitif before we get into the books? Yeah, uh, mine might 
be a little obvious, and certainly you will be shocked to hear me say this, I think, because you know my my feelings on them. But I feel like if if now is the time to have read Alan Moore's The Watchmen before you read these books, I feel like what he's putting a commentary on is this kind of character. He his that that comic sort of exists in a world that's like between the pulp stuff and golden age comics i feel like he's thinking about the moral issues that are completely unexplored by these books you know the sort of total moral thoughtlessness of the doc savage books is something he's interested in and in fact you know when in the first book fortress of solitude where he's talking a lot about why he goes to the fortress of solitude and what it's like being there it reminded me a huge amount of the dr manhattan stuff which is about like isn't it incredibly lonely to be super duper powerful uh, don't you sort of become post moral once you're more powerful than everyone else around you and i think that sort of stuff is very thoughtless in this book what doc savage stands for is the vague notion of writing wrongs and you look at it and you say isn't that kind of a really empty thing to say actually and i think that's sort of what that's sort of that's what watchmen is about you know that sort of simplistic sense of good and evil is actually morally bankrupt. So I think that that's, I think that, you know, um, I think that <laughs> I think that Doc Savage makes the Watchmen more interesting. If you've read the Watchmen, I think being steeped in some of this older stuff makes that that book more more interesting. I think by the time more is writing, I think almost every thinker uh, and entertainer is already one step ahead of him. But if you put it back in the context of of this this kind of pulp era, I think it I think it becomes interesting once again. Chris, I don't think you understand that Doc Savage's business is shooting other people's troubles, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Unusual wrongs that could stand writing. That's what he's about. Here's here's my main question about him before you guys get to his. Is he made of metal? Am I understanding this correctly? <laughs> His nickname is the Bronze Man, Made but especially uh, especially in Fortress of Solitude, it's metallic, metallic, metallic all the time. His fingers, his face, his features, bronze and metallic. At, at first time I was reading, it made me feel like I had missed something and that he was supposed to be like metal literally in some way, <laughs> like wearing some special proto Iron Man type second skin. The way I mean, they're always wearing like, uh, bulletproof everything in this. Like he's got this really, really deep tan from all his adventures. But people on the internet, like fans of Doc Savage, I guess there's like a generation of fans that grew up when the stories were republished in novel format in the 1960s. So right now you have all these like 60-year-old Doc Savage fans who grew up reading those. But like there's some debate as to whether like if he's ethnically ambiguous or not it's like this well, whole thing that people kind of go back and forth on if he's supposed to be maya or if he's supposed they to speak be... ancient mayan that's yes. what the group speaks is ancient mayan and it's also these books should be called doc savage and the gang you know doc savage right. and the boys as you mentioned uh and they all speak ancient mayan together although we'll get we'll get into all of that i just i was thinking about him like is he literally bronze is this guy literally made of bronze am i understanding this right I had a similar thought, although at the end of Devil Genghis, I think there's a specific thing that says 
Uh, he was, you know, so tough that it was almost like he was really made of bronze. Like she has to <laughs> suggest that no, he is not actually made of metal. He's just a regular guy. It's it's um, like those bodybuilders when you see them put on like the yeah the fake tans and they they go for that like statue living statue kind of look to it. I, like I assume it's a little bit steeped in that like bodybuilder image of uh, you know man of bronze. But it also says stuff like his metallic fingers dug into the snow or whatever it is. Where I was like, is, don't you have another word? Why are you making me his think of metal? gold glinting eyes is another one. Or uh, yeah, <laughs> gold flake eyes. Gold flake eyes. John, are we going with the devil Genghis? We're not calling it the devil Genghis. We're going with the, <laughs> the correct mispronunciation. It's funny, right before I started reading these, I saw uh, Brian Regan's whole stand-up bit on like, going to a party and there's the asshole who keeps saying, well, it's actually Jengus, not Genghis, you know, and feeling like, <laughs> oh, let's go with the correct mispronunciation for You're this. not going to be the assholes at the party. <laughs> Jengus. I also chose a comic book. I just happened to have just met this last weekend, the great Mark Wade, one of my very favorite comic book writers of all time. He's awesome and a sweetheart. And I uh, got to see him do a panel on but you know, from script to panel, it was really fantastic. He's awesome. And one of the best things he ever wrote was a JLA, Justice League of America, story called Tower of Babel, which was uh, penciled by Howard Porter and Steve Scott. And you can understand why I thought of this, because in this particular issue, the main thing is that Ra's al Ghul wants to uh, use satellites, which will jangle up people's heads and make them not be able to read words. The written word becomes completely blurred to them. And then after that, the the spoken word, just basically communication completely breaks down on Earth is what Roz's plan is. But that's not the interesting part about it. The interesting part is that before he starts off with his plan, Roz specifically goes after members of the League with exact weapons uh, for what their, their vulnerability is. So like Aquaman is rendered aquaphobic by an altered version of the Scarecrow's fear toxin, which is pretty bad since Aquaman needs water to survive. Uh, Flash is hit with a vibra bullet that causes him to experience seizures at light speed. Wonder Woman uh, is injected with a nanite that basically traps her in a virtual reality battle against an opponent that is undefeatable, and her own refusal to surrender will eventually kill her. So how did he get all these? How did he know all their vulnerabilities? How did he get these weapons? He got them from Batman, because it found, turns out Bruce Wayne has had this contingency plan against all of his teammates all along in case he ever needs to take them out for any reason. They're, you know taken over by their bodies are taken over by a villain or if they just turn bad he has a way to take them out he has files and everybody basically being like this is the best way to kill superman and martian manhunter etc so it's a pretty fucked up thing that their own weapons end up getting used against them against the league and i you know that the fact that the bad guy finds the weapons and uses them against them is obviously what we're going to be talking about here and it even has a climax set in the arctic although it's not superman's fortress of solitude uh it don't like fortress of solitude it does have an Arctic Climax. So that's my fantasy. Arctic Climax is my favorite Mountain Dew flavor. It's my so favorite good. indie band. <laughs> uh, well, we're all on the same page picking comic books. Um, with, the, with that mustache and facial hair, the audience can't see. You look so much like Val Kilmer in Tombstone right now. <laughs> Thank you. I, You're I a Huckleberry, Martin. Uh, I shaved everything except the mustache and the goatee, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I thought, like, oh, you're a judge on a show where people forge swords and then smash them on <laughs> pig carcasses and bend them <laughs> like that's the watermelons the in half. You up with. so i'm not sure if i'm gonna keep it but uh i'm gonna wait you do, till you you do look like you'd be 
right at home at the Renaissance Fair, not dressed up for it, <laughs> but like a guy who one, has one of like guys who's... has like a a leather pouch on a on a tong around his neck. It, it might not last. Um, no, you look good. I said you look like Val Kilmer in Tombstone. That was a compliment. Well, it started as a compliment. I'm not sure where it ended up. Um, so I, I also picked a comic book, uh, called, uh, Flex Mentallo, which is a four issue mini series, uh, written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by, uh, Frank Quitely. And it's sort of a callback to this like golden age sort of superhero. The character is like inspired by the, uh, the muscle man from like ads and old comic books where it's like, oh, you can like beef up and be be manly and buff and strong <laughs> and the way that grant morrison kind of harkens back to like that era of comic book stuff is really interesting and in how he brings it forward i i think like a lot of what you said about watchmen could also be applied to this and it's also funny and strange and you know it's full of a guy flexing his muscles going around doing manly superhero things <laughs> which felt very uh dark savage i thought who may or yeah. may not be made of metal based on your- it's <laughs> also we should we should point out we're talking about comic books a lot doc savage is not a superhero he's no. just some guy right he's, he's and- like batman a lot in the way that like oh he's been trained up to be super capable he's very smart he's very strong he's he, like he has no superpower but he's he's like on the verge of being superhuman just by having that that heightened intellect and physical ability like he's he's pushing the limits of uh of a regular human what they're capable of let's go down the list here because doc savage is a man who's raised by scientists to be like the perfect superhuman guy right he's he's described as a combination of mental wizard scientific genius muscular phenomena with eyes like pools of flake gold being continuously stirred he's a ventriloquist he's a lip reader he uses sign language although they refer to it as the finger alphabetic system used by deaf and dumb persons. I guess it wasn't <laughs> didn't have a good name for it at the time, I suppose. And is a perfect voice imitator as well. And that's on top of being a scientist and a martial artist with a photographic memory. He uh, doesn't have highbrow ideas about what music should be. He won't voice a suspicion until it's a theory that becomes a proven fact in his mind. And uh, he's a not expert. But despite all of that stuff, he is a rookie yak milker. We discover in these stories. <laughs> it's funny. He even, you, uh, his he even plays the violin. Like he's like, yes. And I don't he, even think Sherlock Holmes is good. And at he the uh, he sucks on a licorice stick too with the Hepcats. <laughs> he does that as well. It's not just the violin. He 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 goes Woody Allen style. Get some Wild Man Blues in there with the swing orchestra. So I would it, say that this character is very Woody Allen-esque. Would you guys agree with it? No, I'm absolutely <laughs> joking. So, but you, all those things you mentioned, it should be pointed out in the books too. They both live in New York. That's something. He lives, he's headquartered <laughs> in the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. Apparently. And they're both married to their stepdaughter. It's incredible. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know it's not Woody Allen's stepdaughter. So I anyway. I watching The Critic and there was one joke, like, it, I mean, The Critic is a funny cartoon to begin with but there's like one Woody Allen joke which I think is like the most uh savage joke in the whole show where he's like oh Jay she's gorgeous does she have a daughter and it, it's so quick <laughs> like it just like <laughs> got me uh dying of, of laughter but anyway but I was just show. gonna say all of these qualities right when they come across in the book it has like the the 
quality of kids playing make-believe, you know, like, yes. oh, then I use my powers of ventriloquism or, oh, then I throw my blindness bombs and it's the first you've ever fucking heard of it. You know what I mean? Like the rules aren't set up like Doc Savage does this, this and this. It'll be like, and then, you know, Doc Savage rewired the plane as he had been an expert plane mechanic and, you know, such and such. It'll just all the time or, you know, he pulls out some you know, custom throwing stars designed to fit perfectly through glass without causing it to shatter. Like whatever fucking shit it is, he's just, he's got all of these skills and weapons and stuff that come out. And it really reminds you of like being 12 and like, or not 12, that's way too fucking old, of being six yeah, and playing not, with your yeah. friends. Yeah. Throughout and like, it has that kind of like improvised being told to you as you're reading it kind of thing. The very first thing I thought of was, uh, the uh their their chainmail bulletproof vest oh, yeah. that they describe and they there's really like a sentence that's it. like we'll stop any bullet oh, oh also it's nice knife proof i didn't mention that but it's also knife proof this <laughs> feels like very like whatever I mean, it is like sort of well, i'm gonna pull a knife the, on um, you yeah well it's knife proof too so you can't hurt me <laughs> like the 1960s batman that's kind of what it parodies when it's like oh out here comes the shark repellent like the fact that he has everything in his utility belt it, it kind of comes from this yes uh... absolutely yeah yeah and it's very earnest there is no um self-critical sense of humor to it there's a ton of hijinks there's monk and ham yucking it up yeah Yeah. but it's not it it has no sense of self-awareness i would say it is it is one of the most if not the most earnest thing i have i have ever read as far as like having no sense of self-criticism whatsoever you know it's shame maybe not earnest it's shameless for sure (laughs) it is absolutely there is nothing it would it would refuse to do to move the story along there's just one or two moments where i i think like oh they did something clever like um there's a little bit where i think it's ham and uh, monk i think it's ham and long tom where they kind of pull the like you know, please don't shoot us or please just shoot us. Don't let us freeze to death. It's like their rare rabbit, like, oh, you know, don't throw us into the briar patch. And at first it works. And, you know, it seems like, okay, like they, they did the thing. They pulled the fast one on the, on the villain. They're, they're not shot. They can run off. And then the villain comes back. But first we learn that the they have, they have, like... ser- they have thoughtfully left a big crate of like yeah, clothes yeah. and, food for but themselves the just in case the, uh, the bad guys got the upper hand but then the bad yeah. guys get the upper hand after all yeah I agree the, the, the bad guy uh see so yeah, and when he comes back and he's like you know i heard about you guys you talk <laughs> savage crowd and and like he, he just changes his mind and comes back like i thought that was really unexpected just because you know usually everything goes right in these books um another thing that really got me laughing is in I think it's in Devil Genghis when they steal the the yellow uniforms to disguise themselves as guards and like monks wearing it and it doesn't fit at all. Yeah, where it's, it's too it's, tight on yeah. Doc Savage and a foot and a half. Yeah, too like big it, this on is monk. the kind of joke that I feel like I, I, I've seen. You know, probably like Austin Powers or something like that, where you know you always have the characters knock some henchmen over the head and, and still their clothes uniforms. are tailored to fit them. I remember yeah. in Harlan Ellison's screenplay for city on the edge of forever. He has a very specific note that says, please don't have these tailored to fit them. I hate seeing that in TV when they steal clothes and they're perfectly tailored to fit them. And of course you see the show and, and they are of course the, 
the depression era clothes that Kirk and Spock end up donning uh, perfectly fit them. Very, very shameless. Although, again, that quality of the pilot circling back to them, like John is saying, the stuff being buried and the pilot coming back, it has a very tossed off extemporaneous feel to it. You know, uh, if if it's not they're not complicated enough for me to feel like oh, he had no idea where he was going. They should also be mentioned, these are bite size. These were magazine yep. size novella type stories. And uh, so you can read them very, very quick. These are the quickest I've ever read any books for this this series. Very breeze of read. But they, they, they have a quality that feels tossed off just top to bottom. Um, sure, and I mean, they're meant to be disposable. I don't know if you pay a nickel and you'd get the magazine and read them and you know they're for 14 year olds to read and you know get get next uh next week or next month's issue like it's, it's that kind of mentality of you know this is meant to be quick and fun and how do they get out of this one and i i don't think there was ever this intent that it's going to be something that people would read 90 years later well it's, it's it was it was yeah. very shocking to me Fortress, maybe because I was used to it. I read them in order, Fortress of Solitude first, where Doc Savage first comes across his, uh, what's close to being his arch enemy, uh, John Sunlight, and then Devil Genghis second, where, you know, the secret Devil Genghis turns out to be John Sunlight, right? Maybe I was used to it by the second book, but I was shocked reading the first book. It is, it is bottom of the barrel writing. It is the worst writing I've read outside of self-published stuff. And it's it really is the only thing I've read professionally published that's on the level of like self-published novels. It really was bottom of the barrel, you know, and it's and it's hard to characterize. I was trying to write it down to sort of um, give a sense of it. But when I come when I put the sentences by themselves, they don't necessarily seem bad. It's more like because anybody has a single bad sentence. It's more like a mass of them. But mine's I wrote down were things like, ugh, said the butler. Right. And like Fifi, he said, is our hold over her two freak sisters, Gianta and Tatiana, who are probably with John Sunlight. Like that's the way dialogue is in this. Or next, the bronze man moved off into the darkness, crawling much of the time and came to an igloo. It was an esclumo igluviac, an igloo. Like these are like that is that kind of insipid, incompetent writing is really my impression of Fortress of Solitude was this is... This is like when somebody you know at work hears you make movies when you work at like the the video store or the Walmart and is like, would you read my script? And they hand it to you. It reads like these books. It's that kind of like quality to it. But at the same time, um, I fucking loved them. I, I they are had so much. They're engaging. so lively. Yeah. yeah. Let me say specifically to what you're talking about in the writing where it'll say, you know, or an igloo kids, you know, it has this kind of like Troy McClure kind of like, you know, thing where he has to like describe everything. It makes it so refreshing late in Gang uh, Devil Genghis, where he says uh, in the cabin, the the Asiatics rattled around like whatever it is that makes the sound in Spanish dancers castanets. <laughs> I love that he clearly doesn't know what it is because he always will throw in the word and describe to you what he's talking about. It's like, yeah, I know what that is guy. The fact that he just throws out like whatever it is that makes that noise really endeared it to, to me. Cause I'm like, yeah, he clearly doesn't know what it is. I, there, I was also, I just found in my notes, the, the section that I think characterizes most what these books 
are like is at the end of The Devil Genghis, where Doc Savage is explaining the, the way these novels generally work is that there's something that appears to be supernatural that's taken hold of the world and is a supernatural threat and then is revealed to be uh, scientific, quote unquote, by the end. But there's a lot of explanations in this book, and this one is explaining what happened to the people that appeared to have gone insane. And it says... It was hypnotism aided by a drug, Doc Savage said. You seized, each of, you seized each of these men and treated them with a drug that paralyzed their minds, a drug that stopped their minds on one thing, as it were. And while the drug was taking effect, you used hypnosis as well, fixing in their mind the hallucination that they had to go on fighting silently against you as you stood over them. John Shunlight shook his head in a slow, puzzled way. You knew that. How? Simple diagnosis, Doc said. It's just like fucking every piece of that is ludicrous. I would have loved it if like, hey, Doc, what's your what's your doctorate in? And it's like, oh, child psychology. Like, I would love it if it was something completely like Although irrelevant. What you, to what you described just now, the hypnotism that makes them think that they're seeing things and they're swatting at them is just what Mark Wade has Wonder Woman doing when she's affected by the Nanite in uh, Tower of Babel. <laughs> <laughs> These things just translate to different things. It's great. I love I love the convolution of the action. Um, my one of my favorites is in uh, the Fortress of Solitude, where they uh, decided to infiltrate the bad guy gang by you know pretending to be the bodyguards of this uh, prince who's going to be this king from another country who's coming been summoned to the Arctic, and Doc Savage is pretending to be both. They, they blinded the prince, right, so he can't see them, and Doc Savage is pretending to be both his bodyguard and the pilot of the plane. He's you know, throwing, he's like, has two different voices. And so when they get there, they have to crash the plane, explode the plane, because that's the only way they can explain how there's and no pilot. And wrap up, the, is it beef or a pig in human clothes and throw it in there? So there's a lump of burning flesh. It's absolutely ludicrous. And it has, and it has that constant quality of him writing himself into a corner and being like, ah, this doesn't make any fucking sense. You know, <laughs> over and over, it has that quality to it. And so for the same way, it has like the liveliness of a story that only wants to tell you what's interesting. Well, it fusses has... over those specific details, like, uh oh, I can't, I've got to explain how there's no pilot, as opposed yeah. to like, as opposed to everything else involved here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it truly doesn't matter so much of what right. he gets caught up in explaining the details on. Um, let's, John, what's the plot of The Fortress of Solitude? Take us through that. So the listeners, which I'm assuming, I mean, if you haven't read a Doc Savage listener, go read Fortress of Solitude right now. It will take you about 35 minutes and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Well, the simple synopsis is Fortress of Solitude is a story about taking back the fortress, right? And the Devil Genghis is a story about rescuing the pig and the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> With a bonus, Doc Savage makes Afghanistan violence free forever. <laughs> Are they in Afghanistan? They keep, I keep they, it's yeah, not clear. They sit next to Afghanistan, and by the end, they're like close Tibet. to Tibet. So it's somewhere yeah. in between Afghanistan and Tibet. Because it kept on striking me. They kept on describing the cruel, violent culture of Tibet. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Martin, do you agree Fortress of Solitude should actually be called Doc Savage's Death Machine? I was going to say the exact same thing. I, I, no joke, I have that in my notes that it, yes. although Fortress of Solitude clearly stuck around somehow. So maybe that is the better title, but I thought Death Machine 
sounds really cool. Yeah, Doc Savage is definitely that's what uh, John Sunlight calls his um his machines that he acquires from the Fortress of Solitude. The disintegrator, which is um this really great description of like, oh, they they turned into like a black ghost, like they just disintegrated into cinders, basically. Yeah, you and can then, picture it really yeah. easy. I, I'm surprised oh. that it's not called the Strange Blue Dome because they make such a big deal about it. Apparently, yeah, they call it like that's it's its fucking proper name. They call it the Strange yeah, Blue Dome. Capitalized when people yeah. refer to it, they're like, "You didn't see the Strange Blue well, Dome, did you?" The way it's set up, it's like a mystery. Like you don't know what the Strange Blue Dome is, what 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 the deal is with it, and it's only at the end that you find out. Yeah, oh, but that's I'm, what the fortress. But that's is I'm, sure, is, I'm but... sure one dude looking at it was like. Uh, it's really more like lavender. Like I guess it's like a cornflower blue. It's like sort of a purple. Like there's no. It's the strange blue dome. Well, I really liked um, that the Inuit people who are living in the area pretend that they can't see it. And there's yeah. this description about uh, John Sunlight how like he actually gets unnerved to that like maybe he's losing his mind for a second, and that's like the <laughs> thing he fears most is losing his mind because his mind is so perfect and powerful that he's like terrified of of uh, insanity which i thought was going to pay off at the end of devil gangus and it didn't <laughs> his but... his downfall in devil gangus is much better we'll yeah, get to that but oh my god a, it's, a it's, different it's, downfall, it's but... pretty amazing but anyway i guess it had been already mentioned in previous adventures this fortress of solitude that the doc goes to for months uh to do secret experiments or to th just to think and also just get away houses. from women, it seems like. Also get he away seems from the, all those goddamn women. Who the, the theme of the book is like, these ladies make me uncomfortable. Like, he really does come across very strange in this book. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but also that he constructed it to, as a sanctuary to house inventions too grim to be in the hands of men. And I guess he'd mentioned this uh, fortress before, but no one has ever been there but him. So that they call it the strange blue dome throughout the thing. You know, it's supposed to be kind of like a twist. We find out, oh, this is it. This is the fortune of solitude he's always talked about. Of course, that's the title of the story. So it's not really much of a twist. <laughs> but anyway, we got John Sunlight, right? He's something horrible with a human body. He's a long sack of bones with a thin poetic face and a pair of smoldering, compelling eyes. He's a guy who basically is sent uh, to Siberia. It manages to break out because there's an icebreaker that brings supplies there every, you know, several months. He takes over, he destroys the entire prison compound, apparently, takes over the icebreaker with the other convicts and heads out. But they are pretty much at the end of their rope. They are close to cannibalism. And then they find this strange blue dome, which, of course, is Doc Savage's fabled Fortress of Solitude. So John Sunlight has access once he finds out how to get into all of these fantastic and horrible weapons the, the great criminal mastermind of the world now has access to these terrible weapons and starts using them. And that's when Doc Savage and his gang gets in. Doc Savage has the Fabulous Five, a five-man brain trust made up of a chemist named Monk, a lawyer named Ham, an electronic wizard named Long Tom, an archaeologist named Johnny Littlejohn, and an engineer named Rennie. And in this first story, I think it's just Monk and Ham and long time that he ends up uh, using yeah. on the adventure long time is around but he made no impression yeah, on me long time. whatsoever the only the only thing i liked was at the very end when they're inside the fortress of solitude it's like monk and long tom are all dazzled by everything that's inside and ham is just like he's a lawyer like he doesn't get what's going on so he immediately <laughs> gets down to business but um i i assume these characters are fleshed out more in 
other books maybe do you do you make that assumption that they're fleshed out i mean mom i think that's a very adventurous <laughs> fleshed out assumption you know some ways like oh they're off in egypt or wherever but um, yeah monk, but monk to is, me is fantastic <laughs> monk monk to me i kept on picturing as being played by william de Marest. he has the quality of like a preston sturgis character who's a little bit of a lunk and loves you know talks like this like he gave me that yeah. impression the whole time, although he's not described that way. He's described as looking like a bullet headed, hairless, redheaded ape creature. He's just he's just made to look like an absolute cretin sounding. And he's uh, he's is he the great engineer or is he the chemist? He's the, the, chemist. Homely, the homely chemist, the homely, the homely chemist, chemist the who can't get enough of the dames. Mwah, I, I went mwah, right mwah. to Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> yes. picturing that the whole time, but. Very yeah, Ernest Borgnine. All these characters he's are He's not very... as gregarious as Ernest Borgnine. He's, no, I'm but... telling you, he's more William Dimmerest, like, yeah. there and suspicious of everybody and perpetually dyspeptic and, yeah, these, yeah, oh, Doc Savage. No, no, I think Dimmerest, I think, is more on the money because these characters are very slapstick, very 30s and 40s comedy slapstick. And even the situations that they end up in and Devil Genghis when they're on a boat together and they're both trying to woo this woman you know, and he like uses like his pig to like try to like charm her and they make bets to like murder each other's pets, you know, whoever gets the girl. It's all <laughs> very like 40 slapstick, you know, kind of stuff. It so is. Demarest, I think, would work perfect. For them. Yeah. Oh, if you made it in the 40s. Yeah, it's like a crappy version of Screwball. Not crappy, like completely lunk-headed, broad, cheap seats version of what yeah. you would see in Screwball. Yeah. For Which sure. is saying something. <laughs> when he's saying like oh damn woman drivers and then he checks to see if the woman's attractive or not and then sees that she's not and he's like yeah damn woman drivers <laughs> stuff oh, like so, that i was so happy more when you knew exactly what i was talking about when we were spamming <laughs> about that but yeah um, these are fun colorful characters and and john sunlight is a great villain i think that yeah. uh for everything that dent you know can't make doc savage particularly intriguing to me he doubles down on making sunlight really sound awesome you know, uh, talking about how he has a face like a gentle poet and this remarkably high forehead and hollowing burning eyes and a starved face. And he wears, he's wearing a cape at one point and it says it gave him the aspect of a satanic alchemist, which yes. is fucking awesome. And they, they how they describe it. He <laughs> it's fucking people. awesome, terrible writing in just out of nowhere. Anyway, go on. But, no, but I mean, the, the fact that John Sunlight, Sunlight, he says specifically doesn't kill people. What he does to them is worse. That he yes. has this like psychological command over everybody who's near him and everybody. He wants fears to him. how does he phrase it? He wants to like dominate people. Like that to him, right. that is this better than killing somebody is like dominating them. And I love um like he does all the all the things a good pulp villain should do. Like I love when he's selling the the death machines, the weapons, he's gonna sell one to one nation and one to another nation. So they you know, they have to buy them. And then when he's dealing with the prince, it's like he just tacks on an extra million dollars to the price. <laughs> just, just because the prince was rude to him. And it's like, it's like the Darth <laughs> Vader, you know, like I've altered the deal free. I don't alter it any further. You know, he does stuff like that. It's kind of interesting when it gets more into his motivation, how he's describing like, like, oh, like, I don't want to, I don't want to kill him. Like my goal is the same as yours, Doc Savage. We're not so different, you and I. I like I want to... <laughs> You know, I want to end war and I want to, you know, subjugate all the nations under me and, you know, 
he wants to uh, have gun control is yes, like one, one of his main uh, objectives that Doc Savage is like, you monster. Um, <laughs> but like, it's interesting. This well, is written funny. in like 1938, I think, Devil yeah. Game. This was published. And he's talking about like, hey, look, we had World War One. Guess what's right around the corner? It's like, it feels like somebody writing today doing something really hand-fisted about like the specter of World War II right around the corner, except it's yeah. not. It's written at the time which kind of made that really interesting when he's talking about like, hey, do you really want another World War Dog Savage? Because that's what's going to happen if you if you kill me, basically, is, is kind of how that dilemma is. Well, is it's presented. fascinating. It's me fascinating, Hitler, too. It's, it's fascinating, too, because John Sunlight is this like Rasputin-y type figure who comes out of Russia, although he's not Russian. And having this like communist adjacent anti-second amendment one world government villain feels like something out of like a mid-90s fucking racist pamphlet that timothy mcveigh would have been really into you know what i mean it feels like <laughs> that kind of it has a turner diaries-esque quality that like like you're saying would feel ham-fisted looking back on it you know like world war ii looming it has this like Oh my God, they're making, you know, a one world government anti-Second Amendment guy, the villain in 38. Give me a break. But then that's what's in there. It's fucking crazy for that. I've got to say also, anytime I look at my notes to try and find something in here, all my notes just say things like imitating the dying beefsteak fake pilot. That's all my notes. Are <laughs> Can for we this. talk about the uh, the metaphor about the poison seal? How the story has to stop for a second. And he explains like his whole philosophy of why he why he put these death machines in his fortress of solitude he's like talking to the inuit yeah uh, elder or uh shaman and he's like say i found this poison seal what would you do with it and he's like oh i would bury it so nobody would come across it just destroy the weapons <laughs> what are you talking about what is why is there a whole chapter about the this like metaphor of a poison seal you know it's what i like strange i like best about the the fortress of solitude for housing the death machines is that itself it itself is a death machine when john sunlight mm -hmm. puts himself inside and he goes and he's like i had it you know set up with gas to gas to death who's ever inside with this remote tube and it's like why do you have this what are you fucking talking about you just have to turn everything into a death machine Doc savage you know is this really the problem of like somebody's in there and lock themselves in I got to foresee that happening. Like, why is that your attitude for this? Especially considering he's such a ham-fisted pacifist throughout these things. And there's a lot of like the Cobras parachuting out of their blown up vehicles from G.I. Joe, you know? Yes. Like, you knock yep. the guys out, but make sure that they don't die and save people from the fire so they don't die. Yeah. The alternating bullets with the knockout bullets. When it yeah, got to that point, I was... Bullets. Yeah, it did feel like G.I. Joe, where it was like, hey, are people not allowed to be shot in this? Devil Genghis cures you of that worry if if there's allowed <laughs> yeah. that violence in it. My, but my, it does. My, one of my favorite things, one of the things that cracked me up, but I also think is awesome, is how Doc has a college in upstate New York that he sends his Oh my God, it's so to. fucked up. 
that rehabilitates them. <laughs> they lobotomize them or something. It, it, the, this, for people to understand, he has like a network of thousands of former criminals working for him that he sent to an upstate brainwashing school. Like when he finds a criminal, he takes them and sends them to be brainwashed. And he's like, everyone's like, uh, the book is like, why did he trust these informants so much? And it's like, well, it's quite simple. He, They're all former criminals. And you're like, okay, who got reformed? Who have been brainwashed. They're like, what? To his clockwork orange school. <laughs> I know. And the, the most fucked up part is Fifi, the sort of damsel in distress in this book. At the end, they're like, ah, they're going to give Fifi the mind wipe, but only after Ham fucks her. It's like, what are you? How is this the lighthearted, jovial ending? It's like, to, uh, Fifi like, seems like a pain in the ass. Don't worry. She'll be mind wiped. Ham's going to fuck her first, though. Definitely for sure. That will happen. And then she'll get mind wiped. When it's talking about like Doc Savage giving the speech to all of uh, John Sunlight's men, where he convinces them that like, hey, you've been through enough suffering. Like, I'll just wipe your minds; it'll all be fine. And, <laughs> and the way it describes it, it's like Monk and Hammer saying like, he was so persuasive, even they considered having their minds wiped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I it's like low hanging fruit to critique and make fun of these books or make light of this kind of writing but it's so lovable like it's actually like i'm not shitting on this at all like i'm describing things that i found charming in them that i found very delightful in these books that happen to be totally in conflict with what one thinks of as good writing can i make a confession yes you wrote one of these and sent them <laughs> no, to us. But... These are completely fake forged <laughs> Doc Savage novels. Well, I mean, I got these as as just like text documents. I couldn't get a hold of uh, physical copies. So I just got them as like these uh, text files downloaded from a strange website, <laughs> which is perfectly fine because they're in the public domain in Canada. So I've I've committed no law to, <laughs> to, to brainwash me, Doc Savage. But uh, when I read the lines where it's like, you know, he ejaculated, meaning he yelled out loud, I just turned into like a 14-year-old, like, giggling. I know. Did you get super amalgamated in those moments? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there there are a couple things which, you know, it's it's not like, oh, these were written yesterday. They're, you know, there are a couple things which are uh dated but again that's that's part of the charm a, a couple the, things <laughs> yeah like how it's references to like the, the the sandow and what's the name of the driver the race car driver that i had looked up it's like ed barfield something like that it makes very like timely references to people like that i don't you know i don't savvy that lingo <laughs> i know you don't savvy any barney like, oldfield that's the guy's name I'm not sure if you, because they, they've talked about like making a new Doc Savage film today, even if it was set in the 1930s, I'm not sure it would still have that charm because it is so specific to. I don't know, because I, I, know. I find the the mid 90s uh, attempts at pulp like um, Shadow and the Phantom and even Mask of Zorro to be so charming and likable those i really, really well, that, i that really like the time those to make a doc savage movie is right in between the rocketeer and the mask of zorro like you rocketeer know, if, perfect example you know, that, that if i think if you made a doc savage movie then that had that tone i, I think yeah. that would be delightful um, I, I would say the, the first first captain america has the tone 
of of these books a bit. I think I can actually see it. Well, being it's at uh, home Joe in Johnston who did the Rocketeer, so that, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, since you brought Rocketeer, we could just take a minute to praise it. I mean, that movie completely fooled me for uh, years. I thought this was a pulp hero from the 30s yeah. and 40s that had been adapted into the 90s, like The Phantom in the Shadow. I was shocked to learn about all about Dave Stevens and how it was, you know, a recent creation to, you know, capture that spirit. Yeah. I totally had no idea that it did such an amazing job that I really thought this is an iconic American pulp hero. Yeah, you know what I thought about for years because of that movie? For years was Jennifer Connelly's boobs. For years because of that movie. I Not a day went by. No, have I ever told you my Rocketeer story? Have I told you guys my Rocketeer story? Seeing it at the Indian Lake Cinemas. So I had I went into the theater and I was like the age. It was my last loose tooth I had. And it was coming loose during the screening. I was eating my big bucket of popcorn in front of me. I was like fucking around with the tooth the whole screening. I could feel it. Uh, coming loose and I was playing around with it eventually came out and I put it in my pocket and uh I was like oh I guess I've been drooling like my popcorn is wet from screwing around so much like I was a kid and I went to leave the theater and people were looking at me and their faces were like duh you know as I was walking out and I was like what's going on and I looked down and I was wearing a white t-shirt that was covered in blood and butter from the popcorn like bloody butter <laughs> it looked I just gotten it all over my shirt and my popcorn was full of blood as well like the last remaining bits of popcorn when I looked out I was like I wonder what people think fucking happened to me just coming out because I didn't look traumatized anyway just walking out of the rocketeer and I liked it so much I threw up blood like what the fuck did people think happened with the rocketeer <laughs> I do remember that story you realize it, that was the movie <laughs> that, I can remember the exact theater yeah. uh, boyhood after I got my two wisdom teeth pulled <laughs> that's uh... Did, did you, having your wisdom teeth pulled, and forgive me, because obviously I love Linkletter as much as anybody, did it make you realize this is a really interesting idea that resulted in a not that interesting movie? Did, that, did it give I, you I the clarity? I think the wisdom teeth what did it. Because I, I was sitting there with just like a wad of like bloody gauze in my face just watching this movie in an empty theater. I'm oh, impressed God. you have any memory of watching it after that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the ideal way to see it. My wisdom teeth story getting removed is even worse. All four of my wisdom teeth were impacted. They were growing in sideways. So each one took the doctor an hour and a half to get out for each one. So it was three hours for one side, three hours for the other two weeks apart. And I had this incredibly gorgeous voluptuous doctor who like had to like you're digging around in there she was like on top of me with her whole body on me like jerking material in my mouth and like ramming it around and she was wearing like a white mask and like blood is squirting up onto her face and her mask she's like wrenching around inside my mouth for like an hour and a half right and three hours she sits down sits back she's gorgeous lets her hair down and, and she's like, takes Kruger. her no, and lets her mask off. And she's like, oh my God. And I was going to sit up like that was really intensely erotic. I was going to make some joke about like that. And I sat up and I was like, hey, and that time I <laughs> threw up blood all over myself. That was, I thought I was going to give the like, we really shared something there, didn't we? That was really intense. I'm like 17. I've never had a gorgeous woman grind her body on me for hour and a half instead i was just like she's like are you okay and i was like yeah like i literally went to say like i'm fine and threw up more blood on myself jeez i've been having dental work all year and my dentist is like a 55 year old filipino man 
when I when I when I had um some minor throat surgery done before I got my tonsillectomy, the doctor who did it was a a very strange, smelly old man, and he similarly was grinding all over my body <laughs> on top of me doing this throat surgery. And uh, yeah, I wish I had thrown up blood on him. That would have been a better into that story than botched surgery that I had to have redone two years later. Zero percent erotic. Rocketeer, wisdom tooth dentist, hundred percent erotic. Both both counts. My rocketeer story is just that my dad was the rocketeer for Halloween that year. He never dressed up for Halloween. He made this helmet out of paper mache and fiberglass that looked fucking incredible. Looked like as good as the movie. I was like, wow, my dad could like do anything. Like I've never seen yeah. him do something like this, but like he could do it effortlessly. Like my dad's amazing. You know That's my. Amazing. My dad went all out for Halloween every year when we were little, like he would do things like one year he set up a white sheet uh, with like a silhouette of a body behind it. And he came out as a mad uh, surgeon covered in blood. And when the kids would ask him for candy, like, let me go get it. And he'd walk around to the silhouette behind the sheet and like wrench into it with saws and knives and pull it open and like splatter on the sheet and come out with like a handful of like bloody candy, like covered in fake blood and put it in. One time he played like a night of the round table hiding in the shadows. One time he was a uh, like a uh, surgeon or uh, not a surgeon, a uh, like witch with a cauldron, a wizard with a cauldron. And he'd reach down to pull the candy out of like the, the dry ice cauldron. Of course, you know, Murray Funderburg went bananas for stuff like that. That's great. I mean, I would not surprise to hear that at all. <laughs> And you know, in fact, I can actually transition us right back into Doc Savage from your <laughs> your, your horrible blood uh, vomiting story. There is a part in the Fortress of Solitude. Hold on, that York. story is a fantastic memory for me. By the just for the record, but there's a part in uh, Fortress of Solitude set in New York when uh, the guy turns into the black charcoal, the charcoal black, and dissolves into the, the cloud of sepia vapor, where it mentions a cook who cuts her finger after being startled by his scream and bleeds a thread of crimson for some time thereafter. And it tells us it's very important that this happens. Did I miss it? Do you guys remember this? Does it come up again at all? It's they, they it's somehow used to prove that the body had been moved. Okay. That's from upstairs. And the body being moved is because Doc Savage's disintegration and darkness machines were huge with a very limited radius like they were like refrigerator sized. And so to move the body, they had to move the machine to get it out because they only have like a 20 foot radius. So to perpetrate the hoax that they're able to disintegrate people, they need to hide it in the attic. And her blood somehow proves that the machine was moved somehow. I figured it must be something like that. If I'm fucking remembering somehow. correctly. Yeah, I think it's just something <laughs> I missed the details but oh but the point is he 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 introduces this very early and then it doesn't if it pays off it's not until much later that you're supposed to remember this bloody finger anyway um let's talk about some of uh john sunlight's gang we got sivan his lieutenant who is a bestial black ox to look at a lot of descriptions of people as being black in these that i don't think you're supposed to be a black person you know it's very confusing like it says, the servants were surprised that he turned into a black man when he start, starts to char really? up. Because yeah, he, he, <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was maybe intentional as as kind of a joke. But um, yeah, well, uh, but I would say about these books, I was impressed for being pulp in the '30s how much it stays away from controversial material. These are very G-rated 
innocuous things most of the time pg rated yeah, I, I always kind of brace myself for reading or watching stuff from this time period like just in case you know you might see something pretty racist or you might see something pretty sexist and these were uh like you said pretty pretty pg yeah so, it's it's sexism uh, is, is pretty heavy it's it's sexism. The, the sexism is but even that it's like it's what a hot dame you know, or yeah, it's actually, it, it, it's, you know, I wrote down the line. Fifi had the cutest form of any small girl Doc had ever seen. Short girls are usually spread out a bit. That's the way it talks yeah. about women. So there's that. There's um, it moves a little bit in the second one. The, Tony know, the, Lash the racism is, is very like is is like a cool female character. Like yeah, kind of Tony Lash is cool, and so are. Um, giantia and titania <laughs> are pretty cool. No, but they're they're, like, they're very classic curvy guys very specific fantasy from this era just oh, showing uh, up like no one's gonna know i was completely jerking off while thinking about these characters and writing them I, like, i'm they, sure i'm sure they these, have these that quality to women them. who who you want to beat you up <laughs> these these amazon women 100%. in the mood right out of futurama yes. yeah. <laughs> it is it's so much like that it Brushed felt like is that is that a reference to this is how it felt <laughs> But it has that Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman esque quality of like smuggling your cowardness and betrayal are her worst aspects. The fact that she turns cucklebur on everybody, yeah, yeah, she's whiny and a jerk. Ah, She she doesn't know she's writing a prescription for a mind wipe with that behavior. What were you gonna (laughs) say, Martin? Uh, Well, like none of these characters are really framed as being like romantic interests for Doc Savage at all, like. He is kind of not interested in women, really. He's overtly afraid of them the way he's not afraid of anything else. It says that women make him uncomfortable. He doesn't understand what they're thinking. He's always trying to get away from them. It it is very interesting in that way. Yeah, that's one of his few vulnerabilities is he doesn't know. He can't predict how a woman's going to act. That's why in the second book, uh, Tony becomes such a uh, good enemy for him because he doesn't get into speed or moves and i was just going to say also like the the race like there is racism in these books but again it's very like it's like what you'd expect if you if you watch um you know some of the movies that were inspired by this period how they kind of transplanted that without being that Critical, I would say, you know, like I'd, a... I'd say it's more paternalistic than racist. It's racism yeah. tends to manifest as like, oh, these wise Eskimos that are our friends. You know yeah. what I mean? These simple people more than it manifests as like these gross, loud, dangerous, stupid, funny people laugh at them. It doesn't really manifest that, like, that the, way. The second, the second book, which, you know, keeps talking about like the Asiatics and it's not that specific about where they are in Asia, somewhere in between. Afghanistan in Tibet, but it ends with like Doc Savage giving them like commandments about <laughs> their lives. And it's like, you know, and people who like uncovered them years later were marveled at like how how well behaved the culture was and how yeah. sensible they were. And I mean, the uh I was just messaging a little bit before we were recording, but like there's this whole section towards the end when they're using ham all painted up gold to trick the local people into thinking that he's a, a deity faceless, with, all-powerful one yeah it, it's just it's just like in 
Return of the Jedi when Luke makes C-3PO float <laughs> to fool the Ewoks. Like that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff I think we're we're talking about. Like it's it's there, but it's yeah, there's not uh, it's too, not there's as blatant as, as some things. Yeah. Yeah, there's not too much like flat out nasty racism. I mean, there's like the occasional description of nostrils that flare with an almost negroid flare, and you're like, Ugh, Yeah. Maybe <laughs> these books are. are actually incredibly fucking racist. Now that I'm thinking <laughs> about that, maybe they're incredibly sexist and racist. But there's is something like PG rated about it. It you know what it yeah. is? It's like the racism of not even Disney movies are harsher than the racism of yep. this. It's like well, the it's racism like, uh... of of a kid's movie from the 50s or 60s. You know, it's just this like, you know, like, oh, isn't it? Isn't this stuff neat and interesting? Because there's yeah. an excitement to experience the other cultures. And like, you yeah. know, I, th I think like when they talk about like Doc Savage influencing stuff like Indiana Jones and George Lucas, like when you go and watch something like, I mean, Temple of Doom, I feel like is more egregious than than this. It's a thousand but, times more egregious. Yeah, but but like I, I think like you know, there's that sense of like, oh, I I grew up with those stories. They're fun stories. I'm just going to recapture that feeling and not being that critical about what's in them as as much as like the, you know the I'm going to put something racist in this story. You know, I always feel like that there's something that like people are so loving that they can transplant that stuff when they revive it and aren't necessarily that critical like um i mean i was just writing about the peter jackson king kong and i was thinking about that with the, uh, the skull islanders where it's just like i love king kong king kong's great i'm gonna do my version of this and like not think twice about necessarily what's what's going in your your version <laughs> well martin um, since since you brought up king kong right I yeah. want to read. I want to read a passage that I love. Obviously, okay. Monk is like a very fun character. Yeah. Right. I, I love this bit, and from the Devil Genghis, <clears throat> says that he uh, was once uh, was once approached by a motion picture producer who had assured him that he could make a fortune as a cinema actor. Oh, yeah, this part. <laughs> Monk, Monk, who had always had an eye for a pretty girl, thought of all of the beauteous damsels in Hollywood and grew rather enthusiastic about the idea. However, why the producer said. You'd make Frankenstein and King Kong look like pets for babies. <laughs> so Monk grinned his homely biggest to cover his broken heart and turned the film offer down, explaining that he already had made a fortune. And I just love this <laughs> this, this description of his homely broken heart. It's just like a very uh, kind of like appealing little moment there. Hey, John, you you could be a pet for babies. Thank you. Thank you. The description I, I love involving babies is the prince was as peevish as, peevish as an ugly baby. The thing I love about the the prince, the best thing with the prince is the fight in the wacky club. It's just called the wacky club. <laughs> he's uh, he's spanking another women. screwball type of thing. Yes. Well, that's also the thing is the people who behave like the prince, the drunken boars are the villain. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're supposed to hate them. The, the jerks are jerks, you know. In this book so you have john sunlight he captures the strange blue dome and then doc savage but his plan is he wants to get doc savage and break his will for some reason that's his plan in both books it seems like both times if he just left doc savage out of it he would have had a much higher success rate not brought doc savage to him or Definitely he, the devil Genghis, 100%. Yeah, but in this one, it's Doc Savage, you know, he and Fifi and Gigantia and Titiana are going to all sort of work together 
together and, and then apart and then double crosses to bring down Doc Savage up at the Fortress of Solitude and his gang of former gulag prisoners who have escaped up there. And that's really all there is to it, you know, just the mechanisms of getting them from New York and together, you know, and, and revealing the plan. That's really all there is to that book, right? I think if you filmed this book, it almost reads like a screenplay at times where it's very dialogue yeah, heavy. Absolutely. It would not be feature length. Like This is like an hour, <laughs> six minute movie, you know, it's very, uh, it's very fast paced, which is fun actually to, to read something and you're at the end of the story in, you know, a very short amount of time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. There's some shenanigans of like, I'm going to make them think that Doc Savage killed Fifi and turn them against him. And, you know, there's stuff like that, little twists and I turns, love but... when I realized I actually like this book was when there's the low-flying Ballyhoo plane coming across Manhattan saying in Fifi's, recording of Fifi's voice, we find out saying, don't tell Doc Savage anything. Right? Is don't there about tell to Doc right Savage about, anything. Is about to tell him? <laughs> yeah. Hold on, what's that out the window? Because they don't know where they are, so they just have a plane calling out to Manhattan. I'd like the movie about the guy who's just sitting in his house listening to this plane being like, oh, I wonder wonder what that's about. <laughs> there's there's a lot of descriptions of planes and things like that. Apparently, um, Lester Dent was big into popular mechanics where he just had like stacks of magazines and he loved boats and airplanes and helicopters. So he a real. To... Uh... Real Miyazaki, eh? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I, I guess he tried to inject uh, that into the stories as often as possible. So there's lots of airplane action. There's actually, there's a pretty yeah, good just, uh, just, section. Yeah, just Devil like Genghis. Miyazaki. He's very similar to Miyazaki. <laughs> You're not going to get talent me talent and ability. <laughs> but I, 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 I did like about the these tales yeah. of what you're saying, Martin. I think we can get you on the record as saying. Ham is Porco Rosso. Um, <laughs> Well, there's a pilot named Por uh, Porco, Porco Rosso. Por uh, who's, Por who's Porco Rosso would have made it. Would have made a you, you great. You do have an Italian pilot, right? Porto Novi. Uh, Porto Novi. Yeah. Uh, Another harpy. War, in the pack war pilot for hire is how he's described. Uh, there's a couple of really good like descriptions of very minor characters. Also, I, I find like there's a pilot in I think it's in Devil Genghis where it just describes like oh yeah he had like false teeth and then. Doc Savage noticed that he had a scar on each side of his cheek and that must be, you know, he must have had a bullet go through at some point and that's why he's got the fake teeth. And it's like a throwaway character, but, you know, you just get those little moments sometimes where it's like, oh, that's, you know, it, it's like the the pulp characters that have a scar and it just makes them kind of interesting or an eye patch or whatever. <laughs> I agree. I agree. My yeah. favorite character in Devil Gangus is just this henchman who's on the plane. Tony Lash tells him... Uh, Somewhere there's a donkey who has no brains because he gave them to you. And he says, I love that line. A donkey so that's hitched to a cart knows what will happen if he stops pulling. And then she, <laughs> and then tries she to just him... keeps going on with the yeah, jokes goes, about the ears all, and stuff. All you ever, all, all uh, John Sunlight will ever hand you is a sword. Who are you to give me orders? And he says, With a sword handed to me, I am a success. This is like a great like breakdown of like a henchman character, like a nobody henchman yes. and his mentality. He says, Do you think the Genghis will stroke your long ears and turn you out to graze in donkey heaven? because he I, I want to go savage. to Tokyo, and then he uh tells doc savage later on this is a very minor character gets knocked out in like five minutes but he tells doc savage before it happens it is a wise rabbit which can recognize a wolf these are great like lines for a throwaway <laughs> henchman character yes. i love it uh they are they yeah devil genghis are 
Well, I was going to say, we agree is better than uh, Fortress of Solitude, don't we? But I'm not yeah. sure that's true. Fortress of Solitude is definitely wackier and not just because of the fight at the wacky club. Fortress of Solitude has a very freewheeling quality to it, whereas Devil Genghis feels like a real book to me in some way. It does. It feels, like, it feels more tightly plotted. Uh, the, the the risk, you know, seems <laughs> seems bigger. Seems like a, a bigger thing that's going to happen. And I, yeah, I, I think that that one kind of moves along a little bit with less of the convolutions, although the convolutions are still there and they're still delightful. In that yeah, I don't. Can either of you explain why he thought Tony Lash was the person to get Doc Savage? Why she became crucial to the plan? Because he 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 hypnotized her the love magnetic, of her life. Yeah, but why? Power. She has the magnetic power to dominate men. That's why. <laughs> but Doc Savage is impervious to women. Surely John Sunlight, the brilliant John Sunlight, should have known better than that. Even John Sunlight has his flaws. No, I it's... I, it made sense that she hired this guy Cautious, this assassin, who every time his name came up, I got confused because I just thought it was the word Cautious. Exactly. Yeah. The first time they say it, it's it, the line is literally like, and there the man approached Cautious, is like the first time he's <laughs> yeah. mentioned. So I was like, I'm having real trouble understanding what you're trying that, to that say reminds to me. me of uh when i went to see mad max fury road for the first time and there's that moment when uh uh immortan joe is just like looking for the wise but you don't know what's happening yet and he's just going splendid splendid like i had no idea what was happening for the first couple minutes of that movie like yeah i guess that room's okay <laughs> True story. I saw that uh, movie with Marcus Penn at the uh, at the AMC Lincoln Center. And uh, and when we came out, I was like, that was amazing. We saw the 3D post converted, you know, because that was the only one shown. We saw it on a huge screen. Might have been if there's an IMAX in that theater, we saw it on IMAX. We came out. I was like, man, that was fantastic. Marcus, what do you think of it? He was like, it's okay. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, I don't know. I don't know that they needed to make another one. And I was like, you you deserve Chantel Ackerman. You deserve your Chantel Ackerman fandom. I mean, that, that's how I felt going into it. Um, that's not how I felt going out of it. I ended up seeing that, like, I think four or five times in the theater. That was like one of those I ones turned where right I around. I it. saw it first yeah. night, turned right around for a screening, turned around and saw it, saw it again. That was my pitch to him. Is like, do you want to watch it again? And he was like, why? I he was would. like, go home, Marcus. <laughs> go home. It's okay. Now he posts gifts of it all the time. I know. That's why I mentioned it. Is that like this guy's acting like a super fan out there, acting like he he loves this as much as he loves incredibly boring Bellatar movies. Nah, as if there's any other kind of Bellatar movie. No, I only like the boring ones. I those are the only ones I like, as opposed to the others that Bellatar. As opposed made. to the early ones where he. <laughs> He hadn't figured to out how to be boring yet. As opposed I mean, to the, the Bellatar Doc Savage movie. And, can you imagine <laughs> Bellatar's Doc Savage? It would, that actually sounds so fucking awesome. Doesn't it? Just <laughs> like, this, like this like 40 minute shot of the icebreaker leaving the gulag that just starts on like the prow of the boat. You, you going just know John Sunlight. He would find like the, the best face for that guy. <laughs> Well, Martin, you're the only one of us, I think, who tried to watch the 1970s Doc Savage. Man oh, my God. Bronze I tried movie. and failed. I, yeah. I tried twice, and both times I fell asleep. Like, it fell like, really asleep. <laughs> but it seems crazy. I, I, you can I think make the this movie's stuff boring, you know? 
I think it, it it comes in that like awkward place in between right in between star like 19 wars, right? yeah it's like between 1960s batman and star wars and indiana jones and all that stuff that kind of came right later it would have been better if it had been made a decade before or a decade after maybe uh but also the film itself is just like terrible i i thought um i'm sure there's there's people out there who like it i think moose Batson likes that movie but uh yeah I, I think like it it just plays it so kind of like oh aren't you enjoying the camp yeah but it, it's terrible and I don't like I, I think like what works about something like Indiana Jones which in some ways is very similar is like oh we're gonna take this seriously um, you know what you know what I, I think you're describing it sounds like modesty blaze oh Jesus <laughs> yeah <laughs> You're talking um, about the Scott Spiegel remake, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's 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 weird. It, I feel bad for George Pal. I know that was supposed to be like his big comeback movie, you know, after the 50s and 60s. Monesty Blaze was? No, no, no. Uh, the, the Doc Savage movie in the 70s. Oh, okay. He was, the one, second, he was, was... the one who produced it and like, you know, uh, developed it and everything. So it'd be his like big Hollywood comeback, you know, for old George Pal, the science fiction master producer. And then just totally sunk nobody gave a shit and apparently it was not a good movie so glad to hear it wasn't good and i you know didn't oh yeah no, feel no, bad I, I would say that, that was not good but it was fun it was fun talking in our dms who we would cast in the various roles like it, it took me a while because like I, I feel like doc savage like he kind of reads as boring and you would want somebody to give him some charisma and some life and kind of fit that description so i I was saying I, I thought Ricardo Montalban would make a good Doc Savage. Great choice in the nineteen seventies, like you know the the physique, but also the the eloquence and you know kind of little bit of uh, little bit of Wrath of Khan Khan in there. So he's too emotional, though. You know who I was thinking was Khan, Khan is emotional is a uh, Yule Brenner. Yule Brenner would work also. Yeah, I, I think that would be a good pick for like a nineteen seventies Doc Savage film that. Uh, that is coming off actually good yeah, yeah and and like and Yul Brynner has that kind of like nondescript like where's this guy from what's he all about like you know I think like yeah. something about that would fit the character really well and the kind of super calm that Doc Savage has like I can yeah. picture the trilling noise coming out of him and you being like that's, it, it, like that's what, what's the deal with that yeah. that's weird and he just acts like it, that's a normal thing for him yeah I think like if I was going to make a Doc Savage film I would play up the, the weirdness of Doc Savage. Like, you know, he's in some ways like he's a fish out of water or he should be, you know, the way he interacts with women, the way he's he's like very focused on, you know, the, the way he's been trained to be this like super person, but maybe he doesn't have good like social skills. Maybe he's, he's not somebody who understands humor the way that other people do. Like, I, I think like you could make him the, the Schwarzenegger in Twins kind of a, character a little bit to make him more charming more likable you know because as it is it's just like you know he's he's this super competent what it makes me think of a little bit is like when you go and watch halloween the john carpenter's halloween how mike myers is like the most kind of plain prototype version of like the slasher killer like right down to the like you know white mask it's like the unpainted prototype that like you can make all these like interesting 80 slashers kind of on top of that prototype you know you can make a freddy krueger painted on 
top of that you can make a what whatever else it's like when you go and read doc savage it's like the unpainted prototype for superman for batman for these other kind of pulp yeah. heroes that are a little bit more interesting where you know they have a little bit more flavor i feel like doc savage you would have to kind of play up the fact that like wait what you were raised by scientists to be like a super guy like that's kind of <laughs> fucked up right you know i feel like that that would have to be kind of the the thing to you know give him some humanity really just too much i think they just pile on too much he's a martial artist and a yeah. scientist and a mechanic he's good at everything you know and it's kind of makes his gang a little more interesting because they each have like a very specific specialty the, the gang the is it yeah, would be more ready. interesting without doc savage because like <laughs> you know you got a chemist uh you have a yeah a chemist an electrical engineer a lawyer like they're an archaeologist you know, they one of them is like the indiana jones yeah group, i feel like you know? together like you know if you have this group of five five characters going to adventures and they all have to rely on each other but they're kind of ribbing each other like monk and ham i feel like that, that you know you don't need doc savage to have a good story with these characters you're all set up for Johnny to be this awesome character because they talk about him like raiding tombs and stuff and like yeah and then he shows up and he's using these jawbreaker words like super amalgamated and <laughs> you find out he's a fucking shark murderer for some reason <laughs> and he wears his hair at scholastic length and we're like oh we all know what that's code for in the <laughs> 40s <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite one of my favorite things about those guys about remy and uh and and johnny is uh uh they spend the whole book basically tied up in straight jackets right but yeah. then at the end it's revealed that they both know how to get out of straight jackets and they've been getting out and putting themselves back in to trick john sunlight and that's been like the main narrative driver is like we got to save those guys in the straight jackets from getting killed. They can just get in and out. That's what these books and these characters are like. Is just the guys in a straight jacket. Don't worry, that guy knows how to get in and out of straight jacket undetected. And when he's out of the straight jacket, he can go destroy secretly all of the functional parts of uh, Doc Savage's death machines. So that even if John Sunlight did want to use them and figure out how to use them, they'd no longer work. So uh, everything you've been worried about this whole book was secretly solved off the page oh, by geez. another character <laughs> and wasn't a problem at all. Everything you've been wrapped up in was in fact irrelevant because this character did it all and solved all the problems and wasn't in danger. Have a good night, everybody. While you guys were busy, you know, <laughs> making all the hillsmen bow down to a golden god, <laughs> we were we were thwart, we were thwarting John Sunlight the entire time. He was basically we were hanging out because normally you solve all the problems. We thought there might be more to it than that. But how awesome is it how John Sunlight dies when they finally oh track God. him down? So Don Sunlight in the Devil Genghis, the plot of it is, is he's pretending to be a uh, a, a supernatural being to enlist all of these uh, nondescript, indeterminate Asiatic people into an army. And he's built a mountaintop um, air base and fortress. And uh, so they decide they're going to go infiltrate that fortress well, by creating the real quick first, supernatural is... victor. We yeah. should mention real quick, this is like a more of a globetrotting story, right? It starts at like New York and then they're on an ocean liner and they're in Monte Carlo. Well, it starts in the Riviera, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it starts It starts back in the Arctic, I think, because yes, we had a few more, yes. a few more in, 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 I mean, words of, to throw out uh, at us. <laughs> well, the Fortress of Solitude ends with, it, it kind of suggests that like, oh, um, John Sunlight, he must have 
eaten he by escaped, a polar bear. but he probably got eaten by a polar bear and <laughs> killed. Later, we find out that actually I killed the polar bear. <laughs> he's really like i made that polar bear my bitch is like the way he like tells what i love savage. too what i love too because the way the plot goes is is it's it shows you the supernatural thing so first we have a dog acting crazy that comes out of the snow very the beginning of the thing right and then we have kumik the eskimo hunter he's swiping at ghosts and tears off his clothes and freezing to death then we have fogarty smith the pilot right? Who's going to marry, uh, uh, no, the Fogarty Smith, who's the pilot in the Arctic, who's gone insane. He's in English insane asylum. Then we have Park Carter, the handsome son of an oil man who Tony Lash is in love with on the Riviera. And he goes insane as well, right? So you have and this chain of ins- clothes and one guy has lost his plane. So we kind of see that like, yeah, things are being taken from. Them. We have this thing sort of creeping down, taking footsteps down from the Arctic, right? And we know that when the last one book ended that that um john sunlight had just the doomsday devices with him i guess in a, a backpack how big are these doomsday devices <laughs> with them as well are they the uh you know are they the size of a of a suitcase the size of a helicopter who knows but john sunlight took him with him and none of them were suitable for killing a bear with he had to do that with his bare hands right but so it, all these people are going insane and as you've heard me explain what how it worked is that he would drug them and hypnotize them to make them think they were being pursued by a ghost right and i love the exactly what you're talking about john where it suddenly at the end explains uh and i had the drugs in my pocket when I escaped the Fortress of Solitude to make them go insane. I had those drugs in my pocket because it's like it's like the beefsteak pilot. Like, well, hold on. Everything you've said is extremely logical up until this point. But where did you get the drugs for it? Oh, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Now it makes no sense whatsoever. Up until now, it made perfect sense. I hope they explain where the drugs came from. You found the otherwise, story. <laughs> exactly no the exact he gets really caught up in explaining these things that like you absolutely would not be like i don't know man because the whole book if that's your attitude you're not going to like these books even one percent absolutely so yeah as you were saying it ends up in some area close to afghanistan and doc savage has created his own army of guys by using ham as the golden god and so they are all they are all led to believe that they were correctly, to be fair, that they were all uh trying to think of the right hoodwinked. Ball. Is that a good one? Yes, word? hoodwinked. <laughs> hoodwinked Bamboozled. by John Sunlight. Run amok. And so you got this big epic final battle between the the believers in John, the, the ones loyal to John Sunlight, now the believers of this all-powerful god who is really ham in a, a suit and, and Doc Savage throwing his voice. And uh, so they finally turn on poor John's uh, sunlight. And uh, what are they? Oh, what's the what's the line? Forgiven are those whose blades enter his body, yells a random person from the crowd. Which is a pretty great line. It's there was not awesome. enough of John Sunlight's body in that one place for all sorts to find it. And then, and what's the next line? The next line is like, he would have been better off getting eaten by the polar bear. That, so, so the cry that got started somehow and spread, and there was not enough of John Sunlight's body in that one place for all the swords to find it. So that suddenly in a dozen sections all over the flying, so that it was suddenly, Jesus, so that suddenly it was in a dozen sections all over the flying field where it was available to more swords. Come on, wow. that's fucking yeah. awesome. And how they shout, look, he dies like an ordinary mortal. He dies. It's like Sean Connery at the end of uh, Man Who Would Be King. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but it is it's it's a funny thing where it's like you read fortress of solitude and you're like oh yeah just you know splotch of blood and the assumption the polar bear got him i see where you're going with this book i know john sunlight is back this one makes it like there's no fucking doubt he's gone you know there's just <laughs> zero fucking doubt ripped to shreds you know i mean if i wanted to keep this going i would have ended it with like oh he's uh he's injected or taken the the chemical that makes him lose his mind and then the next book he, he turns out he was just faking the whole time he comes back you know or something like that yeah. Th this like really like ends john sunlight as a character yeah so i guess aside from him apparently there's no other recurring doc savage villains this is it this is his big one apparently this was happened when they when they returned that's why none of the others came back and is <laughs> it ripped to shreds <laughs> <laughs> and did either of you know this when you picked them i just if listeners i did nothing on this episode to conceive of it except be told what we were doing and read them i knew nothing of doc savage they would just read these books did you know it was the john sunlight uh i did book not and sequel? I, just, I got from the library this collection of the two together and i didn't know you told me you're the one who told me that there was a sequel of sunlight so i did not know until i read devil gangus and they mentioned before he's revealed the you know his poetic face he's speaking with tony lash it was like oh my boy is back <laughs> i think like um, my rasputin creep <laughs> my max von sidow <laughs> that, that's a great bit of casting if we're if we're doing this in the 70s still i mean i can't, I can't imagine anyone else. yeah so i think altogether there's like 181 doc savage books that were published and then there was like an unpublished one that was also released in the 60s so that's God, what does it have to be for... like to not meet the standard to be the Doc Savage book that wasn't good enough to be published? I can only fucking <laughs> well, I, imagine. I think it had to do with, um, I guess, apparently the, the publisher canceled the series and told Lester Dent, uh, who had already like pretty much worked out the next book. I, I think it was like one of those situations because they were writing these so fast that by the time you get to like the cancellation, it's like, well, I already had one written bill, but <laughs> told Lester Dent, this one's so bad, we're canceling the title. He's going to go uh, and uh, spend some more time on his boat. You know what uh, my favorite thing about John Sunlight is? The fact that he dresses in color-coded clothing, like he'll wear all yeah. white or all blue. The, the description when he's in all white is really good, where it talks about like, uh, maybe the stress of the Arctic made his hair turn white, or maybe he just <laughs> yeah. dyed it to look more like, you know, because he loved the monochromatic look so much that he, then, he dyed his hair, maybe. I prefer his, to believe that just he was that cold in the Arctic that his hair turned white. But then he goes to his bedroom, and his bedroom's all white. Like, he's fucking Nas and belly. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> what is that his real bedroom? I mean, it's it's, it's, a, de it's a decoy bed with, with freaking explosives in it. So You're right. A decoy bed with a wax booby trap dummy. You know what I like is that you, you keep hearing about how Doc Savage and John Sunlight are the smartest motherfuckers who ever lived. But they do stuff like attack, you know, a booby trapped wax dummy or, you know, chain their supposedly insane prisoners up in a room with their collection of priceless doomsday devices. Like they're constantly doing, well, that guy's crazy. We probably don't need to keep a guard on him. Just leave him in here with the doomsday devices. Well, Doc's always being conveniently left alone for like 10 fucking minutes by a henchman <laughs> and stuff. We got to go move this box. Oh my God, this box is so heavy. It's taking yeah. so long to move it from one place to another. And yeah. he's, you know, doing whatever he needs to set himself up. 
<laughs> he's also he's constantly walking to ambushes and just barely like getting out of them as well there's a bunch of times where you're like oh doc savage you can't be that dumb and he's like aha it was a reversal i wasn't that dumb but i'm way dumber in a different way and i'm captured now <laughs> that happens over and over of like i outsmarted you i didn't step into your trap i sort of caused a different trap to ensnare me on my own but uh win some you lose some i'm doc savage this would definitely win more rival. than i lose this would definitely rival Doctor Who, old Doctor Who, in terms of like people getting captured constantly. <laughs> yes, the essence of a Doc Savage book is people getting captured and taken around as prisoners. The henchmen, I mean, uh... the ladies, the Doc Savage, the good guys, the bad guys. <laughs> this is what happens in a Doc Savage book. Taken prisoner. People are released. Taken prisoners. Yeah. Traded, exchanged, being followed to where the other prisoners are being intentionally captured a lot of that a you lot know, of it uh, we got to get captured because how else are we going to find their hideout in these yeah books? a lot of intentional capturing i didn't notice that but do you think that john sunlight has his own college where he turns good <laughs> guys into bad guys <laughs> that would be cool <laughs> I, I don't know new. you imagine like like this big showdown between doc savage and john sunlight and he's like wait you do what with the <laughs> He's like, he's just a yeah. yeah if he's like don't worry your henchmen will be fine i'm going to brainwash them and make them indentured servants i'm sorry you're going to do what with my henchmen i'm going to do the truth justice american way thing and have them mind wiped and put into my servitude i mean you compare you think my Doc savage to superman and like like you said there's the superman problem of you know he's so powerful that you know, how can you have uh, tension? How can you have stakes? Like you can't knock Superman out and tie him up really. Uh, I'm sure that's happened, but it's it's not really what that character is all about. Then you see like a lot of the best stories that come out of that character, even going back to like, the you know, early years, it becomes more about, you know, where do we direct the the morality of his power? And it's like, you know, you have stories about Superman fighting the KKK on a radio or you have, you know, Superman going after, uh, you know, billionaires and during the Great Depression and, you know, stuff like that. Like it, it becomes more about just, you know, where do we want to direct justice and who is a villain for Superman? And I think like Doc Savage, it, <laughs> it's really kind of bizarre if you look at it from that perspective of like, you know, what are his values? What is he challenging? What, what does John Sunlight represent? <laughs> it gets a little bit strange. Yeah. Yeah, he also as a character feels very lonely and very yeah. remote, like emotionally remote. He doesn't I, I have if this the is uh, something that uh, later the, books delve into, or like I'm guessing probably not because this is like midway through the series. The, when we started reading these, I I just assumed they were the first books, but they're not. They're like the 80th. They're way into the series. Yeah, they're they're like you know they're more like 40th. In. Yeah, yeah, or um, a third of the way in, I guess. But he. But yeah. he doesn't have the like alter ego. He doesn't have the Bruce Wayne partying yes. playboy alter ego that like you can envy as a reader a little bit. He doesn't have the Clark Kent like G shucks every man. I just like being a regular American guy alter ego either. You know, he's somebody who seems to lead this very. That's why I mentioned Dr. Manhattan and that story being about like 
it would be really lonely to be super powerful, actually. It would really disconnect you from the world and everybody around you. And this book seems to have stumbled upon that in a way. It feels a little like the the author being like, well, what would that actually be like? You know, you can't date Doc Savage, you know, like that's not something that that seems like it would make sense. You know, it'd be weird to give him a, a woman his equal. There's no person on earth his equal, you know? Even Tony Lash, he's not even slightly tempted by. And she her character is basically the most attractive woman who ever lived. That's her character in this book, right? And and so it's very like it's there's an essential loneliness to him. And that and it does make the Fortress of Solitude make a lot of sense. Like he's somebody who just needs to get away from everything, you know. And I've heard that the later stories even dump the Fabulous Five to a large extent. It becomes more solo Doc Savage stories. He has like a cousin character who comes in at some point and becomes like his sidekick. She, she's um, basically like a, a female version of Doc Savage. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. But like it's he like loses his, girl, his brain trust, um, he loses his buddies, yeah. and it's like he becomes even more of a solitary kind of guy. I I do not know what a Arctic. Doc Savage story is without Monk. Monk is I, basically yeah. the star of these two books more than Doc Savage. Love, I don't know if it, those later books, if it's all just it's sort action, of like the like way uh, Rob a... Schneider takes over Knockout. You know what I mean? It's kind of that quality. It's mm -hmm. kind of the way that Chris Farley takes over whatever he was in a movie with jackie chan right he's in a jackie chan movie right as the side you're, you're, you're thinking of beverly hills ninja which is not a jackie chan movie but i i, I know <laughs> <laughs> the day that chris farley died we didn't know we went to blockbuster me and a couple friends of mine and they had all these chris farley movies set up like prominently in front and and no we didn't know because it's this pre-internet era and we hadn't heard chris farley died we went in and i picked up beverly hills ninja and i looked at the clerk and i'm like you guys are really pushing beverly hills ninja and he just broke down crying and i was like i can't even imagine what's going on right now like what is happening inside this man like, I get it, man. You have to push Beverly Hills Ninja to a bunch of fucking high schoolers who make a joke about it. And you're just it's going to break you as a human being. I completely understand. But it turned out to be even weirder, which is that he loved Chris Farley so much. Just the thought of Beverly Hills Ninja made him break out crying when it was mentioned to him. Both are deeply bizarre lives the, to live. And the first time you told me that story is because we were in a car together. And we listened to the radio and they played like three George Harrison songs in a row. And I went, what, did George Harrison die or something? <laughs> and he had, he totally had. Yeah. Well, that was the reason they were playing that many George Harrison songs. Chris, are you happy that Doc Savage is coming to your life? Uh, I, no I, Casca, I know that, but. I fucking <laughs> loved, well, that's the thing. Reading it too, I was like, what can I compare this to the quality level wise? And it's like, Tosca, which I was thought of as the bottom of the barrel style and technique wise before this is a fucking masterpiece compared to the writing in this. Like if he, if he, it seems so unplanned and haphazard, it's hard for me to believe he even saw where individual sentences were going, let alone entire chapters. <laughs> it has the feeling of like, oh, who knows? Kumik, the Eskimo did what, did what? Did what? Ran out in the snow, 
crazy with no clothes on. That's how every sentence feels. He, he if, bursts, if you have to write a 40, the igloo like a greased um, brown bullet. If, if you have to write a 40,000 word book in a month, it would probably look something like this, though. I feel like it's just an example of like something that feels really rushed. You know, it's not thought through. It's not, it's just meant to be action yeah. and thrills and disposable yeah. and These don't think about month, it for sure monthly yeah. stories Steve. what yeah. i would i what i would say is that i loved them i yeah. loved reading these two things am i a doc savage super fan no i learned my lesson with cheech and chong on the swishbucklers <laughs> episode i i'm not going to i'm not going to read any more doc savage novels probably i mean they're such quick reads if i found uh, hard copies and I didn't have to read them on on a computer screen like I did these like the files I read I would pick yep. up one and like read through it but the the physical copies are very hard to come by that that one you held up John to buy it is $179 you know yeah I did love the Apparently, chapter title yeah. room full of dream though I mean that was a, good <laughs> a couple of good chapter titles yeah apparently like the the 60s published ones with the Boris Vallejo covers are like sought after collected by people so they're they're a little bit hard to come by also have you guys looked at the boris vallejo artwork for doc savage where he's got that like blonde afro widow's mm -hmm. peak thing sure. going on mm -hmm. it, it's so weird it's like not how i picture the character at all it's really um you, you know i i think i mentioned to you it looks like an alien in in some of those oh let me sorry this is completely off i want you guys because i was looking at who did the covers for the magazines and it's Emery Clark did a lot of them. Yeah. Emery Clark. Have you guys seen a photo of him? He looks so much like some actor and I cannot put my finger on it. Pull up a photo of Emery Clark right now on your computers. Cause I need you guys to solve this. He looks like almost Richard Jenkinsy. I don't know who he looks like, but he looks exactly like some character actor. You guys seeing him? He's got a little bit of Bedney in him. Yeah, it's going to make oh, me insane. Oh, oh, man. Oh, I see. I know you see oh, what I'm oh, saying? Yeah. Oh, man. It's like scanning in my brain right now. Yeah. I know. I can picture him. He's uh, like a guy who plays like the second lead on Tales from the Crypt episodes. Oh, man. I'll have to think of it. Yeah, I, get exactly, <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're saying. The, the picture with the thinning hair. and Yeah. This is great radio, Sorry. by the way. <laughs> no, I mean, this is my He looks fault. a little bit like that actor who's in um, 12 Angry Men and Twilight Zone and yeah. Killing. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, what is name? that fucking P name? P Piglet. I can't think of any of these guys' names right now. My brain is <laughs> broken. Listeners, look up Emery uh, Clark. Look up some of his covers, too. They're awesome. Yeah, they and, uh, and Walter Baumhofer did a lot of the covers before, uh, before Emery Clark did them. But um, but I, yeah. I I like those covers. The the later covers are like, they look like they're for a different genre. They look like science fictiony. Um, yeah, I guess like there is a little bit of science fiction in these with like death rays and stuff like that. But it's not really. It's not like that kind of science fiction. Yeah, I would um, say the 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 Vallejo ones give a false impression of what the books yeah. are like. But so... uh, like they've done recent comic book series where they kind of brought back doc savage and stuck him with the shadow or stuck him with like early yeah. batman who still got the guns and stuff like that and the style like the way he's depicted is almost always like the boris vallejo yeah there's, like a, that's there's a doc like his... savage on uh on uh, skull island did you know that? that that must have come out after king kong so you know 
Oh yeah, no, this is recent. This yeah. is okay, last okay. Twenty years. So uh, you know, uh, Fortress of Solitude gets stolen. Uh, Skull Island gets stolen. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes around in circles. I, I could picture Doc Savage on on Skull Island. That kind of makes sense to me. But yeah, yeah, it's picture um, a monk on Skull Island. Among his brethren, the size of that ape. (laughs) Oh my god! In the modern version, they cast Jack Black as Monk, though it'd be The Rock and Jack Black. Wouldn't this fucking movie? I'm already talking directed by you know Jumanji director number two. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about the Rock Doc Savage movie. I mean, it sounds like Shane Black wants to put that together, and like they've been talking about it for like years and years at this point i don't know if the the predator not doing well killed any kind of momentum for that but i i have a feeling like like the rock at this point where he's playing characters that are so invulnerable and stoic and boring that he'd probably be perfect for doc savage i think you know i I could just picture exactly what that movie would be if like you know the rock in the 1930s and it's got the same kind of feel of uh you know, Jungle Cruise and whatever else he's doing, Black Adam, stuff like that. I Um, think they missed their window too, you know? Like when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, I was shocked that it did well because I was like, nobody knows these characters. Like like Marvel was really investing way too much in like people that that, uh, no one's going to care about. And then I was proved wrong because Marvel was just like, MCU was just that big at that time. But now I think it's kind of come around and I think movies are starting to not do well because people don't know the characters. And I feel like, now, if you put out a Doc Savage movie, people would just be like, "What the fuck is this?" What, what, would not it, respond to it. You know? it's, it I would mean, be like John Carter all over it. Yeah, I've heard people say that about John Carter. I've never read the John Carter books. Technically, I did see the film, but when I went to Look, see it at the theater, I uh, I lost my keys out of my pocket. I just heard them like fall out, <laughs> and I was like, "Shit!" So I started like panning on the ground, and I had my head turned at like ninety degrees because I was feeling on the ground for my keys, and I could not find my keys. And I would try to like forget about it story. and focus on the movie, but so I was sorry. like, God damn it. Like I, I gotta find my keys. And <laughs> I could not relax and enjoy this movie. So like Sounds every like couple minutes, dream. I was like tapping on the ground again. And I lost them like 10 minutes into the movie. He was like a he's he's like um Civil War Confederate soldier, I think, or something like that. And then he gets transported to Mars. But like after that, like I remember nothing about that movie because I was just like feeling around trying to find my keys and only at the end when the lights came on and the movie ended they had fallen like down a step to the seats in front of oh. me but uh so so technically i did see john carter but <laughs> it was maybe not the you best did you did did at any point did you vomit blood at any point during the story i guess i don't understand stories <laughs> without that aspect of them. It's no, the punchline, but uh, John John Carter would have yeah. done well if it had just been called a Princess of Mars. John yeah, Carter if, is, if, is the worst. It sounds like a Denzel Washington movie about like an insurance agent facing a crisis of conscience. It's yeah. just like it's not. It says it, it nothing. It explains generic. nothing. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't explain like science fiction. It doesn't explain the idea. Yeah. It doesn't sound like action. It doesn't sound like adventure. It doesn't sound weird. And it and just would It looked like it had a cool look. It had a good cast. It's got like half the actors from Rome in it playing Martians. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's probably when I when I, uh, <laughs> when I uh, when I asked John Carpenter, when I said to old Johnny Carpenter face to face, man to man, what project 
would have been your dream project that you wish you could have done. It was before the John Carter movie was made. And he said, Princess of Mars was his dream project that he wished he could have made. They would call it Doc Savage. Shane Black would call it Doc Savage. He wouldn't call it the Devil Gangus or anything like that. You know, it'd just be the same <laughs> well, thing you, again. You want to set up like, for a franchise. So it should be like Doc Savage and the yada da, you know? Yeah. Um, Doc Savage versus the mean machine. Also, if it's The Rock, he would have to have a moment where he'd say, like, let's get savage or something like that. He'd have to stick catchphrases in him or something. Does The Rock do catchphrases anymore or does he just kind of stand there? Do movies do catchphrases? Is that something that gets done at all anymore? I feel like if a catchphrase gets done, like the guy looks at the camera and is like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have my own catchphrase now, right after yeah, they say it. Yeah, it was like the, the joke in Love and Thunder where she's trying to come up with a catchphrase and they're all oh, terrible. Oh, Jesus, like, that movie. Yeah. <laughs> that movie. Uh, so, so maybe don't make a dog savage now. Uh, maybe wait a decade and see see how things pan out. Then it'll be 100 years old. It'll you be, know what uh, movie I want to see? Monk Mayfair and the Blasted Women. That's what I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, what is your dessert pairing with this pair of Doc Savage pulp adventures? Okay, I felt so guilty reading some of the descriptions of the Inuit people that my my dessert is Antonajou <laughs> at the Fast good. Runner, <laughs> the, the film by Zacharias Kanuk, which is about uh, Inuit people before the arrival of Europeans uh, living in way up north in Canada. It's a fantastic epic film. There's action in it. There's a there's a really great chase scene. Do they uh, find a strange blue dome or no? Uh, <laughs> and then pretend it's not there. No, they, they, they do not. But you know, there's there's lots of great stuff in it. It's a fantastic film. I think it's the best Canadian movie ever, and it's on it's on Canadian Netflix. I don't know if it's on American Netflix, but uh, I watched that a couple. I guess about two weeks ago and it it's just a fantastic movie so if you're in the mood for more arctic adventures uh that's definitely an option we know you're a big fan of that one we talked about it on your fire from the fire episode i yes. believe yeah yeah i did that's right yeah uh my pick is one that i would not wait wait, wait 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 let me do mine first because oh, it's okay. fucking stupid so we <laughs> can just get too. mine out of... okay ahead. it'll be a showdown you do yours then and we'll end on my <laughs> idiotic will end on my idiotic uh, selection. I was going to say mine is too, because I wouldn't technically recommend it to anybody, but I did read it. So I feel like it's going to stay as my <laughs> dessert pick. Uh, this is Philip uh, Farmer, Philip Jose Farmer's Escape from Loki from 1991, which is an all is, is billed as a the first all-new Doc Savage adventure since 1949, which is very dubious since they had certainly done Plenty of new stories and comic books <laughs> and everything since then. I don't know why they thought they'd get away with that. Um, but Farmer had done a um, history of Doc's adventures called Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life in 1973, before the books were re- available and uh, or reprinted. And so that was like kind of the Bible for a while for Doc Savage fans, you know, kind of recounting all of his adventures and all of his characters. So his stab at a Doc Savage book was Escape from Loki, which is a prequel set in World War One, 1918, with 16-year-old Clark Savage Jr. We didn't mention his first name is Clark, for Christ's sake. Oh, yeah. do, do you know why it's it's uh, the name Clark? No. Because uh, when they were... Watch Clark. The, character... <laughs> no. uh, the... I guess the publishing house, that they had like the board where they were setting up like, okay, you know, we're going to create this character, and they pinned up a picture of Clark Gable. 
for what it was going to look like. Uh, Whoa, so weird. People writing could just like look at the picture of Clark Gable and be like, okay, that's what Doc Savage looks like. I do and not picture Clark Savage, Gable at all. No, uh, me either, which is uh, maybe it was like that for like two two books and then it quickly changed. I don't know. But because uh, Doc Savage was called Clark, eventually that spread to Superman being called uh, Clark Kent. Right? Whoa, so, weird. There's a I would lineage of uh, Clark Gable to Clark Kent. <laughs> I will. I will say that I would never describe Clark Gable as being bronze or metallic in any fashion. He's zero percent metallic. Well, movies are fingers... black and white. Then they they didn't know. <laughs> they just Certainly didn't no have scientist. the technology. Certainly no scientist. <laughs> Mr. Faulkner, you right? Um, I was actually just watching uh, on YouTube Adam Sandler's first appearance on Conan O'Brien where he's uh, trying out a bunch of characters, and one of his characters is Clark Gable's butler. Uh, Chris, <laughs> Chris, you, you say, you say you're say you on the phone, and you say, is Clark Gable there? I'll be Clark uh, Gable's butler. Uh, is uh, Clark Gable there? No, he's dead. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, ugh, anyway. said the butler. Ugh, <laughs> said the butler. Anyway, so prequel set in World War I, uh, in which Doc Savage meets... His entire team, the fire, the 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 fabulous five, the the brain trust, because they all end up in a uh, German prison camp together and then have to escape. Which I know is very, you know, solo a Star, Star Wars story of like, oh, they were all in one place at one time. He didn't eventually meet them throughout, you know, the years of his life. Uh, but you know, it's so I was like, wow, that's cool. That sounds like a, a fun thing. And also, Doc Savage loses his virginity to a Countess Lily Bugoff. Who's the mistress of the, those ones. Yeah, yeah, the mistress but, of Loki's prison camp commandant, the mad scientist Von Hessel. So you can imagine <laughs> it. It uh, definitely takes a lot of from the original pulps, except the fun and the delightfulness of the the pulpiness of it. It's very, very prosy, very like overwritten, very contemplative. Tonally, stylistically, it totally misses the style of like a Doc Savage story based on just reading these two uh, adventures, it's like, I get it that Farmer wants to like do like a really smart interpretation of this stuff or like make a, a, a stab at literary kind of approach to Doc Savage. It is 100% wrong. It is just it's a, it's, as he's, unfun as you can imagine. <laughs> he's a very strange author to pair with that because he's so horny and pervy too yeah. as an author. And the Doc Savage books are really as much as Monk and Ham hit on the ladies, they're very sexless. Yeah. They're very unsexy books as much as they're about that stuff. And so Farmer's a little like, that's a strange, like that guy's a real classic, gross sci-fi nerd pervert. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love Farmer. In, uh, I love yeah, he's amazing. His books are amazing, but I'm describing them accurately <laughs> well, as well. Did you see the, the trailer for the, the Barbie movie with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken and Barbie? No. When he's like, hey, can I come over to your place? And she's like, for what? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me crack up. But like, you know, the sexuality is a little bit like that in these books where it feels like if a lady reciprocated monks hitting on her, he, like, he wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do with her. You know, like, yeah. it's like that kind of, you know, again, these are books for 14-year-old boys. I think, like, like you said, making it more literary and more adult and putting in a sex scene. I don't know if that's like part of the appeal of these books is that they're kind of trashy. Like that's part of where the fun comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. it's definitely too heavy handed an approach. But the yeah, disposability. I, I, but, but I mean, the, mo the most fun stuff in these books are Monk like getting up, worked up. Is, is Ham sitting next to her in the plane? Oh, I can't stand it. You know? <laughs> I'm so angry. I'm going to murder his chimpanzee. <laughs> 
That's literally what these books are like. Uh, my selection, everybody get out your pencils. You're going to want to write this down. Let's have 30 seconds of silence to let the listener get out their pencils right now. Get it out. Come back to be able to write it down. Because it's a good recommendation. And I want them to be able to hear it and not turn off the episode. Before I say everybody should watch 2016 Ben Affleck movie, The Accountant, in which a young man is raised from childhood to be a killer assassin who works for the uh, the mafia. And uh, and it's the reason I thought of that is it has the same like backstory. It's like the inverted backstory where Ben Affleck's character is raised from childhood to be a, a killer and a genius and all of that. Right. A money whiz. Uh, working with the criminal enterprises uh, raised for this purpose by a psychotic dad, right? And it's genuinely weird. The flashbacks in that movie are genuinely weird when he's flashing back to being a kid. But also what made me think about it is that his character is supposed to be autistic in the film and he's an accountant. He's not a hitman and a killer by the time we meet up him. He's just a CPA. And there's something about Doc Savage's character that reminded me of like, um, like an autistic person, like he he doesn't have access to emotions and uh, the way that's tra they're traditionally accessed. And he has an emotional rigidity and sort of uh, intellectual rigidity to him and remoteness that is that is, um, you know, that's strange. And so this movie, which is not you know, a very realistic or useful depiction of autism in any way. Uh, just as I'm not saying that Doc Savage behaves autistic, I'm saying what he behaves like is fucking Ben Affleck and the accountant is how he acts and behaves in this movie with this kind of like weird uh, cinematic tasteless version of a... Um, of psychology, of a psychological state. You know, I don't even know what the non-offensive phrase... I know it's not disability anymore. It's not mental challenge. I don't even know what I'm supposed to call the psychological state uh, of it. Um, it's and it's and it has the similar um, sort of this appears to be being made up on the spot quality. And it's funny that you mentioned Jose Farmer because I the reason I said you should watch this movie is it's sort of I think if they tried to make a Doc Savage movie it would come out like this. It would come out as this John Wick atomic blondified version of a quote unquote realistic action that's at the same time heightened and absurd. I think it would come out as looking like this as opposed to what it's supposed to be if they made it nowadays. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I was just another thing to think about you know, when you're thinking about what pulp is and how it changes throughout the ages and what it means and its approach to characterization in particular. And, and also it's a very fine line sometimes between yeah. what what's what is pulpy and what's not. like I always think of uh, I mean, since you brought up the accountant like Jason Bourne, like on the page uh, seems like it should be incredibly pulpy. You know, it's the super yeah. spy who has amnesia and he speaks all the languages and, you know, he, he's got all these super abilities like a doc savage type and it's like you know the the, the thing that keeps board identity maybe from being uh the accountant is like a very fine line um you know i i think like yeah 
you know, th there's a version of Born Identity that's like starring like Steven Seagal or somebody like that. And yeah. It's just like, oh, that like that <laughs> stupid movie, not like, oh, yes, this is one of the the smart action movies that's going to inspire a whole wave of action movies. You know, like I, I think like sometimes it is how that stuff is handled. You know, it's like the, sure. the difference between, you know, uh, a B science fiction movie and, and an alien or something like that. You know, it's like uh, it could easily become that and i mean john what you're saying about the the later books like it's sort of interesting that like attempt to maybe elevate doc savage and i don't necessarily like you know maybe some characters that would work for or like if you put doc savage in the watchman maybe that would be something totally different uh you know if you had uh, instead of the comedian you had doc savage or something <laughs> like that you know you, we would all talk about him as a, as a completely different character but it's interesting, like the attempt to take this pulpy character and like, how do I, how do I elevate it? How do I make it adult? Well, how that's do I make exactly it, you know? the the contrasting the accountant with with these books makes me think about what do we mean when we say characterization? Because the characterization in these books, I would say, is incredibly thin. They're almost non characters. It yeah. takes two full books. For me to remember which one is Monk and which one is Ham. And I start to remember who Monk is because he's the only one on page, right? You know, but when they're written, like Ham and Monk talk and act and behave the exact same way. They're very hard to differentiate, despite their descriptions being two wildly different person, this sort of bullet-headed man-ape and this debonair, super appearance and clothing-obsessed lawyer, right? They couldn't be more different, but the characterization makes them incredibly similar. But it it's funny, it works in in a in a funny way. It's worse to do the accountant and try to give complex or serious characterization to characters like this. It makes them worse to to work with characterization in that way, you know? And it makes me, you know, just putting them next to each other makes me think about like what is what what works, what doesn't work, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. And like you're saying, the elevation is something that people always think of being as a good thing, but in fact can make things far worse and damage it, you know? I think the account is a good pick, personally. I mean, I'm a I think both of us are unapologetic Ben <laughs> Affleck fans, right? From this from the get-go, right? Absolutely. Even in the, the Aaron era, Henry, we never abandoned him. The Aaron Henry story. We we were psyched Round to see four. him in Chasing Amy. We were psyched to see him in Mall Rats. That's how early you and I were in on the the Affleck train. We uh, we both pronounce his name wrong because we knew him from, you know, fucking Dorm Days. Is that what that movie's called? School Days. Glory with Aly Days. Glory Days with Alyssa Milano. We didn't know how his name was actually pronounced because we had never heard it. So you and I both call him Ben Affleck instead of however it's supposed to be pronounced because we were just saying this guy's name, you know? Is it really Ben Affleck? It's, it's, it's at this point, it's has been Affleck. Am I right, oh. guys? Oh, oh my God. Oh. No, he's still famous, right? Um, comes and goes. He's never <laughs> never it is. It is funny that uh, that Gavin O'Connor directed that movie. Gavin O'Connor is one of those guys that people were like, "No, this is a real director. This is a real well, interesting did, uh, director." Warrior, right? That was his. He did Warrior. He did Miracle. Uh, I don't he, know if I, I did, thought like those. He were... did Miracle. Does that mean nothing to you, Martin? You're Canadian. Is that the sports movie? It is the story of America beating Russia in the biggest sports miracle of all time. And you as a Canadian must love hockey. Oh, I, I've never seen it. Oh, my God. Hockey. It's a good sport. You should watch it. Anyways. Yes. Chris, yeah, Chris, 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 what? 
Who do you play for, Chris? Uh, USA. Play for the United States of America. That's what I play for. Is that the line, <laughs> United States of America? I, th- I couldn't remember if it was USA or America. I think he, I think he goes the full... I play for the United States of America. I think is <laughs> all right. Well, you guys can keep the hockey movie. I I like the the wrestling boxing. What what is that MMA? Movie? The MMA. Yeah, Warriors yeah. good. Yeah. Nick Nolte's good. In that yeah, I, I like that movie. Yeah. He's Some also part of you uh, talking to each other. It's like you can't understand a word, and you love every second. Of it. Yes. He he was also, I think, most famously the replacement director on Jane Got a Gun. Yeah, I, uh, I remember that whole uh, fiasco. Yeah, it seemed I, I was like, like it, following that like day by day. That that got really kind of crazy, and um, and actors dropping out and switching. And yeah, it seems like it worked out well for everybody involved, though. Giant success, much beloved film. Um, <laughs> Billy Record, perfect director to make a Doc Savage movie. I think that's a good ending. <laughs> I'd watch that. I okay, John. Your guys' picks. Director, you would least like to see make a Doc Savage movie. John, least like to see. Um, Martin has to go first. I have to think for a second. Martin, director, you do not want to see making a Doc Savage movie. Is that a good answer? (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Somebody you definitely don't want to see make a a Doc Savage movie? I'm going to say Shane Black. (laughs) Sorry. Shane Black. Okay. My answer is Whit Whit Stillman. Good night, everybody.